Dear friends, we are going to start with a first joint day for Wurblan Union and ICVI. So please find your seats and we, we, we are going to start with the first session. My name is Antolte and I'm the president of Wurblan Union and I have been asked to say some, uh, give some, some remarks before we are starting the session. And I think it's, uh, it's great to have such many people in the hall and also that we can have this kind of uh, joint meeting between ICVI and the World Brand Union. I have been active both in the World Brand Union, of course, but also in ICEVI for several years when I represented uh, the Norwegian Association of Blind and Partially Sighted. It is very useful for both organizations to stay together and to talk together and that we also can have this kind of joint happenings and we can exchange um, views in many different ways and to many different topics. Education, with talking to blind and partially sighted persons is the right way to do the education. Education without the blind and partially sighted persons will be something different. So this opportunity to be together and talk together is very important. The first session we are going to have today is about human rights. And of course, one of the most fundamental human rights we have is the right to education. It's important wherever I have gone, uh, traveled around, and met blind and partially sighted persons, they always say that education is the key for the future. But to achieve that, we need to be more active in what we are doing, uh, promoting the human rights. This year, it is 10 years since the CRPD was adopted in UN. Long time has gone, much has been achieved. But this focus on, on human rights is uh, important and is the way to, to secure and improve the situation for blind and partially sighted persons all over the world, and especially for blind and partially sighted uh, children. I will now give the floor to uh, my very good friend, uh, Colin Lowe, uh, president in uh, ICAVI, and he will also give some uh, remarks before we are starting on the session. So, Colin, please. Thank you very much, Aunt. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, to be kicking off the joint sessions of WBU and ICEVI. And I would just like to uh, repeat uh, from uh, the standpoint of President of ICEVI the uh, warm welcome which Aunt has just extended to you. 
Um, on the menu, it says that I should make some brief remarks. Uh, they will be very brief, because I, I can't actually think of very much to say. Um, I, um, I made some uh, remarks at the beginning of the ICEVI, the specific ICEVI day yesterday, and I don't want to just uh, repeat them. But I will, uh, there are a couple of points that I will make. Um, just want to underline the joint nature of this occasion. This is the second assembly which WBU and ICEVI have held uh, joint, jointly, and this uh, symbolizes the increasingly close working of the two organizations with, with each other. And that's no more evident than in these two uh, jo joint days, two days of joint sessions that we're having uh, today and to tomorrow. Um, so I would urge everyone uh, to make uh, the most of the joint nature of the occasion, um, uh, discuss and debate formally and informally uh, with your colleagues from the other organization, uh, get to know them better, get to know uh, as many people as you can uh, from the, the other organization, WBU, get to know ICEVI and vice versa. And that, that will facilitate the progressively closer working of the, of the two organizations. And the, the, ras the rationale for this working together is that uh, if, if, we, if we campaign on things that we, that we both believe in, our voice will be louder for joining it with the, with the, with the other, other organisation. So that's my first point. And the second is um, um, uh, just a, a rather um, simple bureaucratic point, but it's, um, it's nonetheless important. Um, in these sessions... Um, well, sorry, I, sh I should perhaps have just explained uh, that the two, the two days will begin with a, a plenary, which will be in, the, in this hall, uh, with interpretation, and then uh, we, will, uh, we will have parallel concurrent sessions on the, the floor above in the, in, the, in the salons. So I think uh, that there will be a plenary and then three blocks of concurrent sessions at, uh, 11, at, beginning at 11 o'clock, 2.30 and 4.30 this afternoon and then another plenary tomorrow morning and <coughs> <coughs> forgive me, sorry um, then there'll be um, fur a further block of parallel concurrent sessions at, at, at 11 and then uh, that, that'll take us down to lunchtime at 12.30 and for the, for the morning we'll do other things we'll have cl sessions close, closing the WBU and ICEVI um, assemblies uh, the, the bureaucratic point I wanted to make is that um, it was clear yesterday in the, uh, some of the sessions that, uh, that we had as, uh, as ICEVI that there, there were points that people uh, wished to um, capture arising out of the, the sessions, out of the discussions. And uh, the, the best way of doing that is to uh, bring a resolution. ICEVI will be having its General Assembly on, on Thursday morning. So I would, I, would in, I mean, there's, there's, there's no need to go mad. Um, there are only so many resolutions we can cope with. But if... Um, if, if there is a point that you want to capture and uh, give gu guidance to your organization, 
as to things that you want them to pursue in the next quadrennium. Uh, do capture it in a resolution, please, and um, send it uh, for the attention of the chair of our resolutions committee. Uh, this is Pravina Sukraj, P-R-A-V-E-N-A, Pravina Sukraj, S-U-K-H-R-A-J, S-U-K-H-R-A-J. She's the chair of the resolutions committee, and you can leave it for her attention at the reception desk of the hotel. So that's re resolutions, please, if you have any, to uh, Pravina, Pravina Sukraj, to be left at the, for her attention at the reception desk of the hotel. So I, th I think that's quite enough from me. Uh, your chair for the first session, the plenary session, is going to be uh, William Rowland. And so, uh, with great pleasure, I pass over to you, uh, William, to, um, to in introduce the plenary session. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Aunt. Thank you, Colin. Good morning, bonjour, buenos dias, salam alaikum. We come to certainly the session I've most looked forward to in this joint General Assembly. And the topic this morning, human rights for persons who are blind or partially sighted. This morning I have the sense of how far we have travelled. I've attended all the General Assemblies of the World Blind Union and meetings of the World Council for the Welfare of the Blind before that. And in those early years, the emphasis was on strengthening and extending services and on strengthening the participation of blind people in their own organizations and strengthening those organizations. The view taken of blindness and disability was medical. But over the years, through our own activism and promotions, it changed to what we call the social model, which says that our limitations are in the main imposed barriers and attitudes of society. And now we have graduated into a fully-fledged culture of human rights. The first UN instrument for disability was the Declaration on the Rights of Disabled People of 1975. Unimportant because we never recognized it, because we were not consulted. This was followed by the World Programme of Action Concerning Disabled Persons, 1983, which was a set of measures for government to implement in the areas of prevention, rehabilitation, and equal opportunities. This was superseded by the Standard Rules of 1993, Again, a set of measures recommended to government, including legislation, and it was a voluntary instrument. And this was superseded by 
the CRPD, Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which is a binding instrument. In other words, it's law and countries have to report on their progress. This together with the other newer convention, the Marrakesh Convention, which deals specifically with our reading needs, the copyright of our materials, books, etc. And this is the background to our discussions this morning that our very able panel of speakers will be dealing with. And our first speaker this morning is Dr. Aubrey Webson, Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary in the permanent mission of Antigua and Barbuda at the United Nations. This is a fairly recent position of Aubrey. He's far better known in our midst as program coordinator at Perkins. And for the wonderful work he did in developing countries, and from, from my point of view, particularly in Africa, to promote education of deafblind children, institutional development, and blind leadership. And there's a whole generation of young leaders, and not so young leaders such as myself, who benefited from Aubrey's wisdom and energy. And I'm now going to ask Aubrey to address us. Let me find the topic. Yes. Our human rights are achieved Um, oh, here we are. The first topic, United Nations and Civil Society, joint action to promote the rights of children and adults with visual impairment. With that long title, Aubrey, I introduce you. Thank you. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for your very kind introduction. And um, it's a good friend. Thank you. It's, it's a long time, and it's good to see you again. Thank you. Thank you very much to the members of the committee and the organizing group for extending the invitation to me. Two things struck me since I came here, as I, as, as I digress before I address the topic. Firstly, I was just speaking to my friend Marianne and thinking that the whole generation of us might be moving on from this. My friend who brought me into this field, Kevin Carey, who may be in the room, sitting with him on Sunday after I spoke, said to me that he was speaking to somebody and saying, Aubrey songs like the elder statesman. Well, if I am the elder statesman, then what? <laughs> but it's good to be here. And it's good to address, to be given the opportunity to speak to you on this topic, which I think is a new topic in some ways, and a topic that can shape a new direction for the new generation of leaders and organizations that work in our field. Because as I am 
contemplated the topic, I took a quick look at the WB website and began also to research my own memory bank and my own thoughts and papers to try to find any organization in our field, specifically in the, in the blindness sector, that defined itself as a human rights organization or an organization that is human rights based in terms of its policy and its methodology to work. Didn't have much success in finding that. Didn't find any philosophy that drove, on human rights that drove the organizations. However, what I do know is that many organizations in our field have been speaking about human rights. The WB itself have been talking about training people in human rights and have done some work in this. So the topic has begun in a way a few years ago to begin to seep into our, our language and to begin to build into our consciousness that human rights is the next step for equal opportunity and equality. I thought I might look at a definition of human rights. And so I turned to the United Nations, firstly, because the topic represented um, the, asked the question of the United Nations. And, and, and the United Nations Office on Human Rights says that human rights inherit all rights for human beings, whatever our nationality, our place of residence, our sex, our color, our ethnic city, etc. It inherently reference all rights of an individual. Universal human rights are often expressed and guaranteed by law. Law in the forms of treaties and international law and principles of, that govern how we should deal with each other within society. The human rights is broader than just taking out an, um, the rights of persons who are blind. It's the rights of all human beings. We should recognize that the universality of these rights extend to all people, and with that, all societies have a responsibility for the protection of all people. I will not bore you with all details on the definition of human rights because we, uh, you know, we can talk about that for a long time, but I just will give you a few glimpses into what the United Nations and it's, and my, uh, you know, it's doing. Because the United Nations, through its moral responsibility, sees itself and have been defined by government to be the first stake or bear, pole bearer for human rights in the international community defines and its identity is based on the charter of human rights. And therefore, in our world, um, the United Nations sees itself and, is, and, and, and not just sees itself, but states are mandated, have mandated the United Nations to be the protector of all human rights, but the reality is the true protector of human rights is down at the national level. 
The, in, the states mandated the Secretary General of the United Nations in 2013 to have his, to the systems to look deeper into the United Nations role of the, of the Universal Charter. It gave him a mandate to come up with an action plan that would work towards the protection of all people. The, the Secretary General himself mandated the entire body, the United Nations funds, the United Nations agencies, to pay more attention to issues of human rights of all people. And to that end, the United Nations came up with an action plan that has strengthened the involvement of all of its bodies in protecting human rights. Some may argue as to what that is, but with the moral authority, with the safeguard of security, and with the diplomatic muscle, the United Nations armories have all worked together in an attempt to bring to this world the, the protection of all people to make, the, the, to make sure the world is a better place for all of us. Despite this, we have been plagued by global challenges, many of which we all, I am sure, with the communication methodology available to us today, we're all aware of the global challenges that infringes upon the rights of people. We understand and we know that there are challenges in our community around the rights of disabled persons or persons with disability. We know that some of that is more so affects women with disabilities and children with disabilities. We know that with the global migration and movement of people that refugees, many of whom are disabled, human rights are significantly infringed. I want to come back to, both, to that in a minute, but it's fair based on the topic to also understand civil society and its role. Because as we sit here, all of us, I think, or most of us, represent civil society and, and or groups within civil society. There may be a few representing government structures and government organizations. So the definition of civil society could be very simply, we could very simply define it to mean any organization that is not for profit or government. It's very simply put, civil society is, comp is comprised of the groups of organizations working in the interest of citizens, but operating outside of the outside of government and or the for-profit sector. The role of civil society in, in promoting um, human rights is significant because civil society, therefore, and by extension, our organizations are the watchdogs of the laws that protect human rights. Those laws we, we are watchdog to, to see that the laws that protect against property, the laws that create opportunity, 
the laws that protect against the infringement of people are all part of the job of civil society. What that suggests to me is that with rights, the old cliche comes our responsibilities. It is to that end then that I wish to spend the next few minutes of my speech as I address the questions of responsibility of those rights. It is quite easy to speak about rights. We know it is difficult to pull the whole, to get us, get us as a global community to agree on what is the right of citizens. We know that there are challenges in society based on culture to under, to, for us to agree on many of those rights. We, I, I have the opportunity almost daily to debate with people from different cultures about sexual rights of, hum, of, of persons, whether it is... It is, it is the rights of persons with disability to express themselves or it is the right of two consenting adults to express themselves. Those, it, those remain very difficult topics in every single debate that has to do with the, trans, with the development of social, with the social development of people in, within anything that I have done in the United Nations. That remains a major topic. However, what we agree on as human beings, is that everybody should have a right to dignity, to develop and live in dignity. It is to that end that I wish then to, to focus for the next few minutes. The, the World Bank Union has been one of the leading organizations in championing the cause of women who are blind. But yet, at the national level, we still have issues and if we challenge ourselves and believe in the philosophy of the right to of, uh, and the philosophy of the right to every every individual's right to dignity and development every individual's right to opportunity for education every individual's right to an opportunity for work and for healthcare we have to think about the persons amongst us who are most disadvantaged are women and children while the World Bank Union has, has championed and have great leadership, female leadership, we have to be sure that what really matters is not the broad international stage, but the narrow and yet the depth of national development. And to, to, and to emphasize that we as a group have to begin to be sure that as we champion the right of, of people, and as we talk about human rights, that we remember the rights of women. There are many examples, some of which are in my paper, which I won't go through, where the rights of women remain significantly infringed. The rights of women and disability. The disability movement, it is, it is scientifically proven and written that as we championed rights, the disability movement and the broader human rights movement ignored the rights of disabled women. And we needed to be sure that as we go forward, we correct that. Because we, can, we, we do that together and we do that separately as organizations.
For me, one of the most important challenges that faces us is the rights of the child. In 1989, the first, the first binding convention came about with the CRC, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. That was followed in 1994 when 92 nations signed the Salamanca Declaration on Equal Education. And, and, and met some of us in this room, or I might say some of you, I was not there, in this room might have been there. And 92 nations signed that into being to look at the education of children. And this was with UNESCO. The, the, in, the, in the CRC, the, the CRC explicitly mentioned the right for education of children with disability. It is that, that, that instrument remained very, remains very important. That instrument addressed the question of education in a broad sense. Together with the Salamanca Declaration and others, and more importantly, together with the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabled, the UNCRPD, we have the international tool or law to guide us and help us as we advocate. We advocated and got approved the Marrakesh Treaty on the Right for Persons Who Are Blind to Read. I suggest to you that we have to now look at practice, how we bring that into reality. How do we define reading? We talk about the right to read. If the right to read is through Braille, then we have to have access to Braille at an affordable price so that people can use it beyond just the classroom. You cannot only advocate for it to be a tool within classrooms because in developing countries, when you're finished school, you have nothing to read. And I know that personally. So you have to advocate at a place where you can get reading material beyond the classroom. Where you can have, if it's the right to read, children have to begin to play with Braille from day one. So that I, you, my child learned to read because he saw his mom read and I could sit down and read with them and they can watch reading. You have to be exposed to whatever that method of reading is from birth, from early. So we have work to do in defining reading and making sure that we are able to provide the opportunity for reading. We have work to do because that's how we are going to get to that right. We have work to do in looking at the right to the child because there are a group of children amongst us who I call the voiceless. That group of children I have particular interest in because of my last vocation and the experience that I had. The group of children with multiple disabilities who may not necessarily fit into the, the classroom in the same way right away, and we have to find ways to understand that their rights must be protected and opportunities for them to be fulfilled as social human beings must be given. We are therefore moving from speaking about rights to taking on a responsibility to make sure that these become practice, that these become a real reality. We look at the committees and organize and, 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 and the, the, the committees that guide us 
towards. There are the CRC committees, the UNCRPD committees, and you have to begin to, say, to fan out and ask ourselves, if we are going to bring this to practice, how do we get represented? I would like to see persons with disabilities, persons who are blind, on the CRC committee. I don't just want to see us on the disability committee. It makes no sense to me that we continue to speak amongst ourselves. It seems to me that we have to look at the international committees that are given the responsibility for making, for following and monitoring the laws. And if we want to know if, they, if persons with disability are being, uh, are being left behind, we have to be in the place to know where they are left. So we have to be on the CRC committee. We have to be on the committee that protects women. We have to be on these committees. And the disability committee at the UN and others has to be broad enough that it doesn't only have disabled people. It has parents, it has experts, and it has us all so that we can speak to all, not to us. My friends, let me now quickly sum up because I believe there's a lot to do. I believe the challenge that our organization have before us is significant. I believe as we move into the new era of truly understanding human rights and becoming part of civil society that protects human rights, that we must begin to truly find ourselves in the places where we can be part of it. I will close with and give you four things that I believe we might want to take on as an organization. One, it might be important to see if each national member of the WBO in collaboration with the international partners that work for persons who are blind and visually impaired, could undertake some sort of comprehensive review of all legislation in order to ensure that the, that the consideration to inclusion of children with disabilities and people with disabilities in general uh, in that legislation to review the policies that the conventions of the United Nations that your government have signed to, to make sure that disability is part of that. Two, to prepare and, prov and provide for effective remedies or solutions in cases of violation, prepare your positions, position papers, that you want to see for, to protect the rights of persons with disabilities going forward. Three, to develop a national plan of action within the context of the 2030 agenda and framework. And the 2030 agenda is not for developing countries, it's for all countries. So to prepare a framework that your country can follow to ensure that it does include the rights of persons with disabilities and that no one is truly left behind. And finally, our old friend, awareness. To begin to carve out the kind of awareness model that you want to build. 
And Mr. 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 Chairman, I will close by saying that in all of this, I ask you to remember in a very strong way the children who I call the voiceless and the people who I called the new lost generation refugees. To see that at the top of your agenda in the 2030 agenda as you go forward. I thank you. Thank you, Aubrey. That was great. Um, Aubrey has sketched for us the scope, the very broad scope of disability and indicated the places where our voice still needs to be heard and to be strengthened. I was reminded of the South African Constitution and our Bill of Rights where 16 categories of people are listed who cannot be discriminated against because of race, colour, gender, disability and all the others. Thanks for the tremendous scope of what you've said, Aubrey. Now, we've got a panel of respondents. Well, actually not respondents, people that are going to broaden this topic into other areas. And um, uh, we're going to allocate 10, perhaps 12 minutes to each of you. Uh, the first speaker is going to be Marianne Diamond. Uh, one Topic, how human, how human rights are achieved through the Marrakesh Treaty. Now, Marianne has, over the past 25 years, held many positions in Australia and globally. Her latest position in Australia is General Manager for Media, Communication and Engagement at the National Disability Insurance Agency. She is the immediate past president of the World Blind Union, presidency having been filled with great distinction. She's also the past chairperson of the International Disability Alliance, and most important, most relevant for us this morning, she led the World Blind Union campaign to achieve the Marrakesh Treaty. And it is coincidental, or maybe an accidental tribute to Marianne, that the treaty was came to ratification with 20 ratifications literally within the few days of us being here together. Tremendous. Congratulations, Marianne, and thank you. Thank you, William, and good morning, everyone. Distinguished guests, fellow delegates, ladies and gentlemen, I am delighted to speak about one of the greatest achievements of the World Blind Union, our work with WIPO and other stakeholders, which led to the Marrakesh Treaty 
to facilitate access to published works for persons who are blind, visually impaired or otherwise disabled. A treaty that was initiated by blind people, led by blind people and for blind people. We should congratulate ourselves on this. It is a first. The treaty about to come into force will allow many millions of blind and print disabled people, irrespective of where we live, to exercise a fundamental human right, access to information. If you were with us in Bangkok four years ago, you will recall we were working really hard with the 186 member states of WIPO to adopt a treaty as a solution to what had become known as the Book Famine. On 28th June 2013 in Marrakesh, the treaty was adopted by the member states of WIPO. For those of us who are fortunate to be present on this momentous day, it is difficult to put into words the excitement and celebration had by all, many who had been working hard for so long to achieve this. In summary, the treaty requires countries who ratify it ensure their laws allow blind people and their organisations to make accessible um, format books without the need to ask permission first from holders of copyright, for example, authors or publishers. And by allowing for the import and export of accessible format books and other copyrighted works, again, without copyright holder permission. Only so-called authorised entities, such as blind people's organisations, can send accessible books under the treaty terms. However, the treaty allows accessible books to be imported or received either by another authorised entity or directly by blind and print disabled individuals. I'd like to speak briefly about what has happened since the treaty was adopted, how it is linked to and is a direct implementation of CRPD, and what WBU is going to do in the coming years to ensure all blind and print disabled people can benefit from this treaty. As per the terms of the treaty, three months after 20 ratifications have been um, achieved, it comes into force. With Canada ratifying on 30th of June this year, the treaty will come into force on the 30th of September 2016. It is important to note that only countries who have ratified the treaty can use it. Countries who hold the largest accessible content are not in this first 20. In 2014, WBU received a grant from the Open Society Foundation, OSF, to support our members to do work towards ratification in their regions. We are now undertaking our second OSF project. This time we are supporting ratification and implementation, 
developing training materials for our members, and we are finalising our implementation guide, developed for governments, copyright officers, and our members. This was developed for us by very distinguished professors of intellectual property and human rights law, and with input from a wide range of different stakeholders. In 2014, WIPO established the Accessible Book Consortium ABC. ABC is a global online catalogue of books in accessible formats. It currently has 19 participating libraries in 16 countries and consists of more than 315,000 titles in more than 55 languages. The capacity building initiatives undertaken in Bangladesh, India, Nepal and Sri Lanka benefited more than 23,500 students in 2015. The ability to transfer books for ABC members has to date been based on licences. Once the treaty comes into force on the 30th of September, those countries who have ratified will see a much smoother, uh, simpler and faster way to move books across borders. ABC is one example of implementation of the Americas Treaty. Join us in the next session to learn more about different methods. A number of articles of the CRPD are directly linked to the Americas Treaty. Articles 21, freedom of expression and opinion and access to information. Article 9, accessibility. Article 30, access in cultural life and Article 32, International Cooperation. And of course, there are many other articles where access to published works will have an enormous impact on CRPD implementation. And I name here Article 24, Education, and Article 27, Employment, as examples. It is pleasing to see that all CRPD monitoring committee meetings, when governments report on implementation of the CRPD, the committee inquires into the status of the Americas Treaty. There has been many workshops held around the world since 2013, and WBU has taken part in many of them. I was fortunate to have the opportunity, supported by WIPO, to do a TEDx talk in Geneva, December 2014, on the Marrakesh Treaty, explaining it through my life story as a blind person. And it has also been pleasing to see, in New York, member states providing information on the status of their efforts to ratify the Marrakesh Treaty at the Conference of States Parties to the CRPT, held each year. I mentioned the development of the implementation guide. We are working to have it published by Cambridge Press and plan to launch that version of the guide in Geneva later this year. We have a small number of copies of the near final text here today. And we have been using the executive summary of that guide in the workshops here this week. 
A very special thank you to WBU members who contributed resources to the development of this guide. CBM, Sight Savers, RNIB, ICEVI, Vision Australia, National Federation of the Blind India. Without your support, we would not have been able to produce this wonderful, well-written resource. I cannot emphasise enough the importance of our collective and ongoing work to achieve worldwide ratification. At the same time, efforts are underway through WIPO's ABC and other projects to ensure we have the capacity and capability around the world to produce and distribute accessible books. It is always dangerous to mention people by name but I'm gonna do it anyway. There are some people that I would like to acknowledge and thank because over many, many years have put a tremendous effort into um, what led to the adoption of the Americas Treaty. And I go back to people like David Mann, Chris Friend, Dan Prescott, Jim Fruchterman, Pablo Lucano, and of course our civil society friends from Knowledge Ecology International and, of course, the library community. Francis Gentle, Director General of WIPO, who was with us in Bangkok, um, has always been a wonderful supporter of the treaty and was always available to meet with us, talk through issues at the, during the negotiations and at the diplomatic conference. And we can never forget our member our member state champion, Brazil, who never forgot who they were working for, blind and print disabled people. They would always consult with us, even invited me to join their delegate table one day. So I was a Brazilian for half a day in the negotiations. And WIPO presented them with a gavel that was used for the diplomatic conference in recognition of their work. Thanks to the WBU members who also made big efforts to attend SCCR meetings in Geneva during the negotiations. And I can assure all of you, our presence was certainly noticed in the room by everybody. It has been an honour for me to work with many people over many years. I have learnt a great deal and together we have achieved so much. Our work is not over, much to do to obtain worldwide ratification and implementation, which only then will really transform the lives of millions of people who are blind or have a print disability. And I'd like to finish now by inviting Ambassador Aubrey Webson to join me. Aubrey, come here. <laughs> you noticed I called you Ambassador? <laughs> He's been waiting for it for two years. That wasn't what. <laughs> I would like Sorry. to present Aubrey with the very first copy of our implementation guide that is not even on the streets yet. Aubrey, Thank you. and there's an accessible version in there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Well done, Marianne. Thank you. Um, Marianne has spoken about our need to have 
wise people at law and in other fields to help us in our work. And we're fortunate to have one of these wise people with us this morning, our next speaker, Ron McCullum. Ron is Emeritus Professor at the University of Sydney. But for us, the most important thing is that he chaired the CRPD committee and was also the vice chair in the second term. Um, beside his work at, at university in law, he has in Australia led many inquiries at federal and state level. A quite recent one was inquiry into Fair Work Act of Australia. But for us, his work in advancing the CRBD is foremost. The floor is yours, Ron. That's just my white cane folding up. But we blind. You hear canes clicking all over this hotel. Isn't it a magnificent sound? Yeah. Hello, everyone. It's great to be here. Can I say, uh, in seriousness, before I begin my short presentation, that we owe a great deal to Mary Ann Diamond. I was on the... I was on the sidelines of all that. I, I, I wasn't directly involved because of my CRPD work. But I think it would be fair to say Mary Ann was generous in naming a lot of other people, very well deserved. I'm not sure that the Marrakesh Treaty would have been ratified at the time it was without her tremendous efforts. I know of no one else who has single-handedly with colleagues brought that about. I went to school with Mary Ann. Um, I was much older, of course. Can I say she was a feisty teenager as she's feisty now? And I guess a bit of feistiness has rubbed off on me. I'm going to speak today about the complaints that vision-impaired people have made to the CRPD committee, which, as you know, monitors the implementation of the CRPD around the world. And these complaints have been made under the optional protocol. My full paper is on the web, so I'll give you a summary. There are nine human rights treaties of the United Nations, and all but one have one or more optional protocols. The CRPD is the Disabilities Convention, and it has been ratified now by 165 countries and the European Union. More than 80, I think it's about 86 countries, have also ratified an optional protocol. Why is it called an optional protocol? Well, it's optional. You can ratify the treaty and you can decide whether to take up the option of the protocol. <laughs> the protocol allows individuals to complain to the CRPD committee sitting in Geneva if one or more of their convention rights have been violated. And we have received a plethora of complaints from the CRPD committee. How does it work? Well, first of all, 
if you wish to complain, go to the CRPD website and there is a, a, an instruction manual on how to do it. You apply to the petitions office in Geneva with your complaint and you must show that one or more of your convention rights have been violated. It's useful here to take legal advice because you have to show that you have exhausted all appropriate internal remedies in your court or tribunal structure or if you come from a developing country that there's no internal um, structure that you can use. Then the complaint comes before the committee and we've elected a rapporteur on communications and that person will register the complaint if it looks valid and is given the okay by the petitions office. Then there's a working group on which I've served and we go through the complaint. What happens is the complaint is registered, the government of the complainant replies, that takes about six months. Then the complainant replies, that takes another three months. Then the working group work on it and it comes before the next meeting of the CRPD committee. That, that might be 18 months to two years in total. It's not a quick process. And the committee discusses the complaint, looks at the recommendations from the working group and makes a decision. Now what you need to know is there's no oral addresses before the committee. There are no lawyers. The complainant isn't there. The government isn't there. It's all done on the papers. And then we issue a decision. It's a very slow process and you're far better off using an, a local remedy where you can probably get damages. We don't have any sanction power. And in fact, around the world, the Complaints mechanisms of all the committees, including the Human Rights Committee, are not being listened to by governments. And I echo Ambassador Aubrey's view. I think there are dangers in the CRPD committee becoming ghettoised if it doesn't broaden with people broader than we disabled people. And I think the, the whole committee structure needs people with disabilities just as it needs men and women on all the committees. I echo what you said, Aubrey. Let's look quickly at the three complaints. I have to say that I was involved in the first two, but not in the third. My term was over and I left it to my colleagues. I finished in 2014. Now, I was the chair when the first complaints came forward. And what we had to do, what I had to explain was, many of my colleagues were what I would call disability activists. I don't think anyone would describe me as a disability activist in that sense. They had to change from being activists to being quasi-judicial and examining the complaint in a judicial manner. Because at the end of the day, it will be the quality of the decisions which will determine whether or not they're listened to. The first complaint involving blind people was Nusky, N-U-Y-S-T-I, against Hungary. Two vision-impaired persons, Hungarian citizens, had contracted with Hungary's largest bank, they received bank cards, as we all do, but the ATM, the automatic telemachines, were um, inaccessible. No braille, no audio. They complained to the bank. The bank spent a lot of money fighting this matter right up to the Court of Appeal beyond the Supreme Court. They didn't get the remedy they suggested, and so they came to the CRPD committee. The CRPD committee held that their rights under Article 9 of the Convention dealing with the right to um, communication, to information, had been violated 
and suggested that the bank should go ahead and retrofit its machines. In fact, while this was going on, the effect of registering this complaint meant that the Hungarian government was busy trying to have greater access to banking machines. Every time I pull out my Apple earphones before an ATM machine, I think of my Hungarian colleagues. The second matter is a more complex one on which the committee divided. It's Jagulin and Sweden. Marie-Louise Jagulin was very was vision impaired. She had qualified in law and she applied for a position with the Benefits and Social Security Department of Sweden. It was an assessor position, assessing claims. This was in 2005, and dates are important. 10% of the claims were handwritten, which would mean that they would have to be read to her. The computer system would take a lot of money to fit, to make everything accessible. And we all know about inaccessible computer systems. With the Swedish Equality Ombudsman, she applied to the Labor Court in 2010, and after considering the matter, the Labor Court held that the reasonable adjustment required of the Swedish Department in 2005, given the state of technology in 2005, was, was uh, too hard and was not reasonable. In other words, you couldn't ask for that huge amount of adjustment for the employment of one person. The matter came before the CRPD committee in 2014. Now note, Sweden had not ratified the CRPD in 2005 when Miss Jagelin was not employed. The CRPD wasn't in existence. But Sweden ratified just before the 2010 judgment of the Labor Court, so the CRPD committee had to examine the Labor Court. The majority, of which I was one, held that um, we would not second guess the Labor Court we looked at the decision. It had examined the process clearly of what the technology was in 2005 and um, held that uh, it was, would have not been reasonable accommodation to require a huge retrofit. Six colleagues dissented, and you can read their dissent. They asserted that the government of Sweden should be a leading employer, that retrofitting was important, etc., etc. Um, it's an interesting decision. I can't do it justice, but I suggest that you, you have a look at it uh, on the web. The third case was F against Austria, decided when I was no longer on the committee, probably decided better. Um, in this case, uh, F, we don't have her or his name, catched, caught a tram in Austria in Linz. And in Austria, it's fantastic. You hold a handheld device which beeps when your particular tram is coming. The tram line was extended and the company decided not to use the beeping device on the extension of the line. They said, oh, he could find that out by using an app. And the committee said, look, you make it tram stops available for everybody, there are signs up, we think you're violating Article 9 by not extending the handwritten, the handheld device to the whole of the tram line. Again, that was relatively straightforward. What does this show? I think it shows that we blind persons can make valid complaints under the CRPD committee. They tend to be around access, and they tend to be around employment, and no doubt there will be ones about education. The CRPD committee has a long way to go, but in the area of, of dealing with complaints, I think its first dozen decisions are judicial, appropriate and valuable. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Ron. Our third and final speaker in the panel is Lars Bosselman, who is Director in the Department for International Advocacy and Alliance at CBM. CBM is a German-based organization with some 700 projects in 70 countries and is an international member of the World Blind Union. I also myself serve on their supervisory board in Germany. Um, Lars has also got specific responsibilities um, for the Agenda 2030 program of CBM. Lars, the floor is yours. Thank you, William, for the kind words of introduction, and hello, good morning to everyone. Um, so, I mean, what I should not probably say if, uh, to start my speech or presentation, but I'm still saying it, is a first note of quick disappointment for you all probably. So if you are having the expectation that I will give the third speech in a row with an Australian accent, you will be disappointed now. <laughs> what is, however, on, on offer for the next few minutes to come is uh, some uh, points and thoughts from my side on the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Um, and from now on, I will use some of the terms um, SDG, Sustainable Development Goals, and 2030 Agenda interchangeably, which for those who are purists is not exactly what we should be doing. Uh, but for the simplicity of language, I will use those terms interchangeably. Now, what I will do is I'll try to address three headings um, quickly. The first is really more an introduction on what is that agenda about, how did it come about, and uh, some really introductory re basic remarks. The, third, uh, the second one would be about what is in the agenda, what does it actually say about inclusion of people with disabilities, but broadly inclusion. Uh, we'll come to that. And the third and final uh, paragraph will be more about how can we actually use it. So with, uh, with your permission, I'll just uh, go and jump right into it. So this agenda, 2030 agenda, uh, which was adopted almost now one year ago at the uh, UN General Assembly in New York by all uh, member states uh, of the United Nations, um, is a framework which is uh, valid for the next 15 years. Well, one could argue actually 14 to remain now. Um, so that is a quite lo long life uh, time for such an international um, agreement, um, which is in the area, as the name suggests, of sustainable development. This framework is the successor framework of the um, so-called Millennium Development Goals, which quite a number in this room probably are totally um, familiar with, and I will not make a long now um, history course on what the uh, Millennium Development Goals were, but I think it's good in the introduction to understand some um, key differences between 
what the Millennium Development Goals were and what the current um, new framework actually is. One of the key differences here, um, I think, is, and it was alluded to uh, by Aubrey in particular, that this is not any longer a framework for developing for poorer countries. And this is, I think, fundamental to understand. This SDGs or 2030 agenda now provides a global platform and framework which all countries, regardless of their developmental status, have something to do with and do about. Of course, the starting point will be very different for poorer settings compared to richer nations, but all of our countries have to actually look into the implementation of the SDGs and how we do it um, domestically and in our development work. And I think that's a fundamental difference. Another point which is very different uh, from the SDGs and compared to the Millennium Development Goals is the scope and the comprehensiveness of the new agenda. Uh, while the um, Millennium Development Goals were pretty focused and straightforward, and also there were only eight of them, just by the number of goals one could probably um, mention here, it is quite obvious that the new agenda is much more comprehensive, not only because it has 17 um, goals and uh, many more um, sub-goals and indicators than the MDGs ever had, but also if we look into the thematic areas covered, there much, there's much more in the SDGs than there was in the MDGs, mainly really trying to um, seek the linkages and synergies between environmental, developmental, human rights, economic, and social issues, trying to bring all this together under one umbrella framework, which is the first um, that the uh, nations, the United Nations, and all our countries actually signed up to su such a comprehensive and ambitious, one has to be honest, I think, about that uh, agenda. Another key aspect, which I'll only quickly um, talk about here, is that this new agenda really tries to seek new forms of partnerships. I think that's something which we will probably come back to over the next 14 years as well, trying to promote really... Um, different cooperation between states, UN agencies, civil society organizations, the private sector, um, in making it happen, in implementing the agenda. Just mention that here, not uh, going into too much detail there, because otherwise I think I'll probably uh, make a lengthy speech. And very importantly, of course, and this you all know and heard a number um, of times again and again, uh, of course, the new SDGs, um, they include the rights of persons with disabilities in contrast to the Millennium Development Goals from which um, the disability agenda, even just looking at the text, was completely absent. So there is a huge progress in just having reference to persons with disabilities specifically mentioned in the SDGs. Which takes me then to the um, second part of my presentation, how to uh, basically to look a little bit more into what's in the SDGs. So I mentioned that there's a number of reference, 11 if you want to have the correct number, to um, persons with disabilities that are specifically mentioned in the text. And this, I'm not going to read any of them or go through them now one by one, um, but this is reaching, ranging from areas such as 
education, uh, employment, to uh, questions of uh, urban settlements and their accessibility. So really vital questions for the daily life of people who are blind and partially sighted and people with disabilities overall. But I think the story of the SDGs being and talking more inclusive language doesn't stop with, the, with counting the references to people with disabilities. It's very important, I think, to look a little further and beyond that, those direct references to disability. One element that I would like to add here is then there are a number of references and sentences which go like, for all, especially in the education, but also in other sections of the text. And everywhere where it's said for all or for all people, that includes automatically people with disabilities even if they are not listed there in those passages of the text. And we should use those um, text references as well. Very important. I also think it's critical to recognize that there are many um, paragraphs and additional references of the SDGs which um, mention marginalized or vulnerable groups. Now, I'm not entering into long discussion about whether we like that terminology of vulnerable groups. I personally hate that terminology and I don't identify myself and don't want to be people who are blind, partially sighted, to be identified and put under vulnerable groups. I think that's quite um, insane and insulting. But of course, um, in the UN language and compromising between uh, 200 nations, basically, there are also sometimes we have to, to sort of uh, live with some um, compromise language that's there. We still, still should use those references where, um, uh, that are put to vulnerable groups uh, in our favor and to our advantage. And very importantly also, the whole spirit and the text of the SDGs is under the motto of leaving no one behind. And this, again, is a demonstration, an illustration of the inclusive nature or ambition or aspiration that this new agenda really brings forward. And we should make really use of, of that and always reminding our own governments and wherever we go advocating for the implementation of the SDGs about this basic but extremely critical principle, leave no one behind, because that's really a strong and powerful um, statement, which of course remains to be implemented, and that's where it gets always difficult. Bringing me to the final um, section of my quick presentation is about implementation, how to use. Now all the text, now that we've seen, um, it's much more inclusive than the predecessor. It's something which we definitely can use as a blindness movement and sector, but how? Now, I think the most critical part is to say the action and success or not of the SDGs will happen at national level. Um, in contrast a bit to maybe what was the case during the negotiations in hammering out the deal of the SDGs, the action will not happen in New York. Um, of course, the UN and New York and other places have an important role to play in monitoring, in overseeing, and so on. But the real implementation will happen nationally. And that calls, I think, upon all of us to really go to our governments and ask the basic question. Some have already done this anyway, but 
um, ask the basic question, what are you doing about implementing the SDGs in country X, in our own country? All of them, all of the countries are supposed to come up with uh, plans how to implement the SDGs and or to revisit existing, sorry, the mic was off for a second, or revisiting uh, development plans, existing development plans to make them in line with the SDGs. So going to those governments, asking the basic question, what is about um, your implementation of the SDGs? And then the follow-up question, once that is, has started the dialogue, is obviously, and what's about people with disabilities, people who are blind and partially sighted in those processes in drafting the plan of the national implementation plan, but also then not only in, in drafting the plan, but following up and implementing the plan and reporting. Now, the countries are all supposed then to bring back those uh, national uh, reports and progress reports that they are working on uh, to New York, where every year in July there is the so-called high-level political forum taking place, which takes stock of um, the uh, implementation and progress made or not. It's very important maybe to understand here um, that all this is happening on a voluntary basis. So in contrast to the CRPD or the Marrakesh Treaty that we heard before, the, the SDGs are not as such a legally binding document. One can argue and probably should argue politically they've all signed up to it so it's politically and morally binding and that should everyone in the country should do something with it. Actually, we also should do something with it. But it is not something that is legally binding, so we cannot address it before the law and before tribunals and so on, if nothing is that. So why I'm mentioning this here so um, critically in concluding remarks is that puts actually a bigger emphasis on our role in creating the political will to implement, in really going to the governments and say, do it. You have to do something. You signed up to inclusion under the SDGs. You and I have to do, and we are help, helping to do something with it. But it's not enough to just sign up and then for 15 years uh, put it on the shelf um, or nowadays probably more on an electronic device somewhere uh, and do nothing with it. So it, the critical role for civil society, the World Blind Union and other organizations at the national level in particular is really to make this happen, and it will not be enough, and I'm very convinced about that, it will not be enough just to say the text is inclusive, makes specific reference to people's disabilities and to other groups of the population, and now implementation will just go ahead and will just happen. This automatically happening of text being implemented that's not how international politics work. That's not how the SDGs will work. So our role in really pushing and pressurizing for an inclusive implementation starts now. And those who want to hear more and learn more about this aspect, of course, are invited to join our session also after the coffee break. So I end on this commercial announcement. And thank you for your attention. Thank you, Lars. We've got the CRPD, Marrakesh, the SDGs. A lot of work lies ahead. We make a lot of work for ourselves, don't we? <laughs> yeah, very good. Um, 
You've got a few minutes for interventions. Um, I believe people are no longer seated by country, but if you've got your country card, otherwise just put up your hand and then we will identify you. I'm assisted by a stage manager so I know what's going on and who wants to speak. Try and limit your comment or question to 60 seconds so we can get a few people. Thank you. Somebody at the back? Um, Des Kenny from Ireland. A question to Ron, uh, if I could. Ron knew what had happened in Hungary only by virtue of the fact that it was remitted to the group in Geneva. Is there any database that could be compiled? Had the Austrian government or judiciary agreed that access was, uh, should have been given to the ATMs, is there a database where uh, the prosecution at a local level and the success or failure of the prosecutions could be entered into a database to help other countries determine when they're looking at case law, even if the judicial system were slightly different, that there had been a successful case brought or that the arguments presented to lose a case had also been presented elsewhere? Thank you for your question. It's a very interesting and thoughtful one. Sadly, some governments have not taken any notice of decisions of the CRPD committee under the optional protocol. It's quite clear that many governments haven't taken interest in decisions made by many of the human rights committee, of many of the committees. My own government of Australia has ignored 19 decisions on our outrageous detention of refugees in our country, which is a scandal. There is no database, to my knowledge, um, which will, will deal with this. If you go to the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights website, www.ohchr.org, you can then look at the various committees under jurisprudence and it will have all the cases, but there's no database as yet. What happened, I think, in the Hungarian case was when the, the, the case was registered and the government had to think about what the bank was doing, the government established its own program of helping to fund um, the putting into Braille and putting earphones, audio, into bank machines. I think it was the court cases of the bank which cost them a lot of money, which went to the the Court of Appeal, which I think was a great waste of money. But that and the embarrassment of the Hungarian government led to more pressure for ATMs. But I'm sorry there's no database. Um, next intervention. Hello. Name and country. William Roland. I am Keshi Chisambi from Zambia. Uh-huh. In 1984, as a founding assembly of this World Blind Union, some of the emphasis were that let us unite if we have to fight for our rights. And I'm proud that I'm here, a member of the founding assembly in Riyadh, 1984, and a member of the founding assembly of uh, African Blind Union in 1987. Here, what we are learning 
is that when we go back to our country, this is what I'm learning as, as a person from Zambia, is that we should ensure that we are united as a force in order to see that the rights of blind people to health, to education, are adhered to as provided for in the CRPD. United we stand, divided we fall. Africans developing, please unite to fight our rights. Developed countries unite to fight our rights. In here, there is no white person, there is no black. We are all blind people made by God. I thank you. Thank you. Right, that wasn't, that wasn't a question, but a very powerful comment from our Zambian friend Keshi, also known in Africa as Mr. Blind Man. <laughs> uh, one more intervention. Thank you. <clears throat> I'm Adam Osvari from Hungary, the Vice President of the Hungarian, Hungarian Federation of the Blind and the Partially Sighted. Well, uh, just to stress the importance of uh, CRPD, uh, a little bit more than two years ago, uh, two Hungarian private persons, uh, both of them uh, are visually impaired, uh, initiated a process uh, on the base of the CRPD because uh, uh, the bank uh, Ophomets or uh, ATMs in Hungary uh, weren't accessible uh, for uh, visually impaired people. Uh, before doing that, uh, the Hungarian courts uh, uh, didn't treat this problem uh, uh, very well, so that's why they... Uh, uh, had to uh, initiate uh, this process on the base of CRPD. And uh, uh, on the base of this process, uh, uh, their complaint uh, was accepted. And uh, uh, after that, Hungary exceeded the deadlines. And there were a lot of problems, but uh, now we have a draft regulation which uh, will create the accessibility of bank alphamats. Maybe it will be a long process uh, again, but uh, we could uh, take some steps forward on the base of the CRPD. So I think it's very important, and for us it's a great motivation uh, to push these things and uh, uh, to... Uh, uh, make advocacy on the base of the CRPD and uh, it's uh, encouraging us uh, very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, what has come from the discussion and the few interventions is the need for a database where we can, in an easy way, get the information about these complaints and processes. It might be a matter we'd like to take into the resolutions. Uh, I believe there are some announcements. Please go ahead. The Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired and Mad Lab present Mappy Hour. This evening, Tuesday, August 23rd, from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock p.m. in Salon 3, 
The Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired invites you to enjoy libations with them and get your hands on tactile maps and graphics from the world leader in advanced blind design. Network with designers, technologists, and entrepreneurs who are thinking about access media in new and creative ways. Perkins School for the Blind is hosting a hospitality suite. All members of the General Assembly are welcome to partake in conversation and refreshments at Perkins School for the Blind's hospitality suite in Salon 1 on August 23rd today from 6 to 8 p.m. Guests will have the opportunity to meet with Perkins President and CEO Dave Power, Perkins International Executive Director Michael Delaney, and Perkins Solutions Vice President Bill Oates. Information on Perkins' new social media campaign, sorry, social change campaign, Blind New World, will also be available. And finally, today is the final day of the exhibit hall. The exhibit hall will be open from 10.30 a.m. until 8 p.m. this evening. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank our three, sp uh, four speakers <laughs> for their absolutely uh, absorbing um, presentations. Uh, I think we've all learned and benefited a lot from the session, and the meeting stands adjourned. Thank you. Okay. That completes uh, the first session of today. And we're on the tea break. Tea break. Boy, what powerful presentations, Larry. What did Absolutely. you think? Absolutely. Oops. My Even the dog agrees. Even the dog <laughs> agrees, yes. Hello there. Hi, there. You available? Yes, I am. Terrific. Let's do it. Let's do it. Kim? Got an interview here. An interview. Okay. Hello, Kim. With Rahim. <laughs> okay, we're doing some shifting around of microphones and guests and the like, so please be patient with us for a moment. Hello, Narit. I'm doing well. I'm about to do an interview on the radio with Rahim. Okay, thank you. I'm moving things around in order to get a microphone toward the uh, two of us. I am sitting here right on your... Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, listening in on ACB Radio live event on uh, this beautiful Tuesday morning, I've got a guest here who is not from these parts. You'd be so kind as to introduce yourself. Right. My name is Rahim from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. I'm here representing the Malaysian Foundation for the Blind in my capacity as the CEO of the organization. Excellent. Excellent. And how large is the Malaysian delegation here today? I guess uh, approximately about 10 people from Malaysia. And in Malaysia is part of the Asian region, it, correct? Yes, it is located in the Southeast Asia region. So can you tell us a little bit about what it is like to be a blind person living in Malaysia? Good question. Um, I think in my personal judgment, um, we are lucky to be born in Malaysia. 
um, as the government policies and cultures uh, really accommodate uh, blind and other disabled people um, in day-to-day -day life. So a typical Malaysian, can you describe to me a bit of the education process since we're here with not only WBU but ICB, ICEVI? Um, all blind children in Malaysia would have uh, equal access to education uh, right from the day one until the higher education if they are able to make it. Um, there is no discrimination between the blind and the non-blind as far as the education is concerned. Um, of course there are blind children or blind people who have not been to school due to other factors such as um, poverty or they are living below the poverty line or they could be living far in the rural areas where education is not really their priority and um, it could be um, the what I call the traditional belief among the parents who feels that education is not what they want for their children instead they would just want their children to be serious in uh, religion learning religious subjects and become a very re religious person so our the education is integrated that it is not uh, a school for blind children but rather they're when they do attend school they attend schools that other people in the area attend? We, I think we have um, two types of school for the blind. We have, of course, the residential school for the blind, and we also have the inclusive education for the blind, where the blind and low vision students would go to the regular schools and um, learn together with the sighted students in the same class um, same subject, same syllabus um, with some special assistance and uh, special tools um, provided by the trained teachers, the teachers who have been specially trained to guide and, and mentor this uh, group of blind students in the school. So you have a, a mixed system. Some attend a special school for the blind. Some attend the regular, what we would call our public schools. Exactly. By government. Exactly. And those who are attending public school have access to teachers of the visually impaired as well as the regular subject teachers within those schools. Exactly. Exactly. Precisely right. Very good. And all children within Malaysia are guaranteed the opportunity to go to school or... Is that very dependent on where one lives and one's status? Uh, I would say they are guaranteed to be in school if they want to. Um, but and, of course... And that decision is made by the parents? It's made by the parents, but influenced by the system. Okay. Um, of course, about, I, I would say about 99.9% .9 of the parents would decide to, to send their children to school. Yeah. Yeah, understood. But yeah. there are some exceptions, as you described earlier. Right. Some of them would like their children to be raised in, quote, traditional way of ways, life. Yeah. Uh, of life. And yeah. that's not traditional for the blind, but traditional 
parole. Exactly, correct. Yeah, and and being blind is you know this is just um, one of those who decide not to go to school. You know, but not because of the blindness, but because of the general belief or the traditional culture itself. But I think that culture is almost uh, you know facing out in the modern society. Understood. So. Continuing with the education side of things, uh -huh. Malaysia has a university system by which people can get advanced degrees in specialized subjects. Do blind people move on to higher education typically? Yes, they are. Yeah, um, I would, I would say um, many universities in the country have begun to ex to enroll blind and low vision students. Um, it used to be a big problem where only one university was willing to enroll the blind students, but that is not the case anymore. Uh, most of the public and private universities have opened the doors to the blind and low vision students to go th to go through the higher education um, at 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 their universities. I, I think it is not a critical issue anymore. Yeah, and. I think it is also worth mentioning that Malaysia is becoming one of the popular countries in terms of higher education in, in Asia region. We have students from the Middle East, from China, from Japan, and even from Europe, Great Britain in, in the United States coming to Malaysia to go through some special subjects or some studies that are not available elsewhere. For example, if they are uh, interested in studying um, Asian languages, then being in Malaysia is one of the best place because um, a lot of uh, linguistic uh, courses are taking place in the local universities in the country. Excellent, excellent. If I were a blind college student, where would I turn to for access to the schooling materials. I'm assuming that the special teachers who work for the school systems for you know young children uh, that that does not extend into the university side of things. That they would need separate kinds of accommodations through a separate system. Are they systems, or are they specifically a particular university that extends that, or does not extend that? The Textbooks, do you mean the accessible well, textbooks? Well, things like accessible textbooks, um, alterations materials. to the testing process that might uh, level the playing field when something is a timed test. Uh, frequently, accommodations are provided where there might be uh, more time to complete a test. Uh, also, a requirement that <clears throat> when some of the schooling occurs through computers that those computers are accessible computers, these kinds of accommodations. Okay, uh, let me put it this way. The textbooks are compulsory to be made accessible, either in braille or audio format. And that task is uh, accomplished by the Ministry of Education, or rather by the textbook division. So in the textbooks division um, of the ministry, they have a group of of officials or a group of people who are well trained to produce textbooks. So what 
is happening, this group of people would work hand in hand with the blindness agencies or blindness organizations and the teachers who are blind themselves to convert the printed materials or printed textbooks into braille or into audio, audio format. Uh, that is one. Secondly, organization for the blind, such as my organization, is also helping with uh, making the printed materials or electronic materials become more accessible, um, such as using the MP3, MP3 files or daisy books or, or large print uh, materials, on and so forth. It is still an issue um, because most of the time the books are not being able to be produced on time by the time the braille books are embossed and and uh, ready to be dis distributed the, the system might have changed yeah the school might says or the, the ministry have changed to a different book but I think that is one of the critical issues uh, that we have to tackle um, very quickly. The timely production of educational materials. Exactly. So let's assume now that we have a person who is has uh, achieved the level of education that they're capable of and, and uh, are interested in and they want to become employed persons. So in Malaysia, what is the situation for employment of qualified blind and visually impaired people? The government has a policy of 1% of the employment opportunities should be reserved for the disabled and that would include the blind. Um, most of the educated or graduate blind people are generally being employed. Um, um, employed at their qualification, meaning they are not underemployed. Understood. Um, so if you have an education, uh, a degree in in education itself, mm, yeah. that you would be employed most likely as an educator. Exactly. Understood? Exactly. Exactly. Um, so let's let's speak to you know those broad issues of of human rights and uh, dignity of people with disabilities, etc., mm. etc. Now you mentioned earlier that the very nature of Malaysia itself lends itself to blind and visually impaired people um, not having to struggle as much with that question as perhaps some other societies. Uh -huh. Am I understanding yeah, you correctly? Yeah, you, you got it right, yeah. And is this as a result of, of um, religion practiced in your nation, or is this as a result of, uh, from its very beginnings as a culture, that it's how people with disabilities are dealt with in your in your society. Um, I, I think um, the culture and the belief of the religion play a very greater role in um, making life for the disabled, especially the blind. Um, are well taken care of um, then with lots of pressure and um, noise made by the blind individuals and disabled people organizations uh, through CRPD and some other domestic law or local 
laws um, lead to a lot of changes in education and employment and social systems uh, for the blind. Uh, I would give lots of credits to the blind leaders in the country. I would also give a lot of respect to the decision makers for listening to us. They may not agree, but at least they listened. Yeah? They may not be able to implement um, everything uh, at one go, but they are doing it gradually. If I have a, to decide where I want to live, within the region, within the ASEAN region, whether I want to live in Kuala Lumpur, in Jakarta, Indonesia, Bangkok, Thailand, so on and so forth, Kuala Lumpur is still being my first preference, still my, being my first choice. I think we have enough public facilities, though a lot to be done. Yeah, We have accessible transportation system, we have uh, accessible uh, public buildings, we have accessible um, school systems, so on and so forth. So we are able to function, we are able to live uh, independently every day uh, with some limitations. Yeah. Um, and I do feel and I do believe very strongly that situation is going to get better with the introduction of uh, sustainable development goals, you know, the concept of being inclusive, and, um, and 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 Malaysian government has signed the CRPD to the, yeah a few years back, uh, but I'm not sure whether they would whether they have signed the treaty on uh, copyright law yeah, or intellectual property and things like that. That is something that I have to find out when I get home. Understood. Understood. So. At this point, what would you say, you know, we're going to be back together again in four years, mm. and what would you say your nation's goals are relative to those four years in the lives of people who are blind or visually impaired? Where do you think the improvements in what that means will occur? Um, I would say the dignity of the blind people and the ability of the blind people would be well acknowledged or it's going to be well respected at least better than what it is now um, and I do hope that um, my, my government, my society in the country the leaders in the society um, uh, would you know, come together and uh, continue to make the, the changes um, for the disabled in the country. Uh, the, but that's one thing that I keep telling people anywhere I go in the country. I keep telling my blind fellows, my, my counterparts, uh, when we were young, we, the more we cry, then the more twice we get. So we have to keep crying when we were young. Now that we are adults, so we have to keep talking, keep campaigning, keep lobbying for what we want. We may not get everything, but we may get something. Understood. What would you say the, the biggest limiting factor is relative to the aspirations of blind people in Malaysia? What is the th one thing they struggle with the most? Um, I think the self-confidence. 
within themselves. Um, they may be well educated, they may be uh, intellectually uh, clever, um, but they are not able to integrate themselves into the mainstream society um, at the uh, satisfactory level, I think. Um, there is a lot of sense of um, inferiority complex, I would say. Or they may, they, they, they always feel that they are not part of the mainstream society. They may feel that they are nobody in the society. They feel shy, they feel, you know, concerned to take part in uh, the mainstream activities. Something that I, I have been working hard to change the mindset of the blind people themselves. Understood. Uh, so we're talking about things such as risk taking, uh, taking a chance to do something beyond what you would normally expect of yourself, uh, mm -hmm. being willing to relocate from one place to, to another the other. for personal advancement. Right. These kinds of things. Right. All of which are a matter of of appropriate and well thought out risk taking. Mm -hmm. uh, it's always easier to stay at home, keep doing things the way you <laughs> did them tomorrow or yesterday to do that same thing tomorrow. Right. But it's very, very hard to make change in yourself or in the society if you're simply doing tomorrow what you were doing yesterday. Basically, getting out of the comfort zone and uh, making a new comfort zone is, is, is something that you know the blind people are quite reluctant. I, I guess that would include myself, um, but somehow I have been exposed to uh, many new places, new challenges, and I have passed most of the challenges, so I would have adopted a different mindset by now. Now together with me, Mr. Brian, I have, I have Mr. Hakimi, who is my right hand in what I'm doing or what I'm advocating for. If you don't mind, I want him to speak a few Please. words as well. So I'm going to get up from here and let him be sitting here and you can then Very talk good. to him. That All right. Thank you for having me on the show. No problem. Hello, Brian. Hello there. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about you. I, of course, know Rahim because he came and worked with me at the Carroll Center for the Blind a number of years back, so I was familiar with him. But I'm not familiar with you at this point. What is your position within Malaysia? Okay, my name is Hakimi. I'm a sighted people. Uh, uh, currently, I am c uh, COO for M uh, MFB, Malaysian Foundation for the Blind working together with Rahim. So, actually, I'm uh, uh, f personally assisting him to achieve the objective of the Malaysian Foundation for the Blind. Yeah. What That's kind of programs does your agency conduct? Since you're a COO, that's an operating officer, correct? Yeah, correct. So, so can you describe the programs of the organization? Okay, for physically, uh, we have a quite many of the program that we uh, execute uh, previously. So we have training for assistive technology products, uh, introduction to the blind people in Malaysia, and we serve 
to other Asian country too, like Cambodia and Laos. So myself actually assisting, uh, conducting the training. So all this while, everyone knows uh, Mr. Rahim, who become the trainer, the instructor. Now I'm start taking over his job by doing uh, the operating uh, operation parts. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So technology training is a component of what your agency provides. Yeah. Are, what What are some of the other activities? Oh, we have looked into our uh, society in Malaysia. We do a lot on awareness campaign. Myself, based on my background in advertising, so we do a lot of video campaign. We produce video, we produce comics, and we give it away to the people. We produce digital flyers, banners, uh, campaign materials, buntings, and yeah. All to promote yeah. what the education, the employment of blind people? Yeah, we start from beginning. We start from who is the blind people actually. So we don't want we do, we don't want blind people uh, treated as alien in society. Yeah, we do understand that uh, blind people is part of the world, but not many people really understand what is their needs, what is their requirement. So we promote this, so, like example such as how to serve blind. Uh, to serve food to them no, but no, not many people know how to serve them so we promote like a clock system how to serve them like you know, if in our country we, we eat rice with, uh, with fish or vegetables so we describe your rice at 6 o'clock your fish at 11 o'clock and your drink outside of the plate at 3 o'clock so we promote this Surprisingly, not many people are aware of this. So we start from very beginning to introduce who is the blind people, how to approach them. Like we we using 3A techniques, how to approach people, how to assist people. We start with approaching. First A is approaching physically and we use voice. We believe, besides use a right word, but the intonation must be right. You cannot approach people with high frequency. The intonation must be right. The second A is asking. You should ask them first whether they need your assisting assistant of of not. And then only if they allow, then only you can assist. So this kind of aspect, this kind of campaign that we are continually promoting in our MFB. Excellent, excellent. So how large is the MFB staff and are your offices located in the capital city or do you have other services elsewhere within the country? Currently we have about six to seven people full-time working in our organization but beside that also we have a very regular volunteers amounting to uh, 15 to 20 people they come from uh, university students 
professionals and media people. Yeah. Excellent. And your offices are in Kuala Lumpur? Yeah, in Kuala Lumpur. And what is the second largest city in Malaysia after Kuala Lumpur? Uh, we have Pulau Pinang, Penang, mm-hmm. and we have Johor Bahru. And yeah. how, can you give me an idea of, of their size? Are mm. they uh, half the size of Kuala Lumpur, a tenth the size? Uh, Penang, I can say three quarter of Kuala Lumpur. So quite sizable. Yeah. Quite sizable. Yeah. Are there similar organizations to yours that are located? You know, when we talk about uh, services for blind and visually impaired, we usually do not discuss it as if it's a single entity that provides those services. Usually it's a network of entities, some which are based on services provided in a given city, in a given region, or perhaps services from one organization that deals with education and a different organization that deals with rehabilitation and perhaps a different one that deals with uh, dealing with the issues of older blind persons. Yeah, how, yeah. how does that work within Malaysia? Yeah, there are few, uh, I can say there are few organizations uh, throughout the nation, throughout the country. Like in Penang, we have also another organization, I, I believe another two or three organizations that that working for human, uh, for, for blind development. Uh, but the approaches might be different with us because they are concentrated more on vocational or rehabs, but we are concentrated more on campaign uh, from beginning. So, yeah. Yes. So you're working with more fundamental issues and not the specific issues that some of the other organizations may have limited themselves to? Yeah, correct. We try to do as many as possible, but we look at the reality. We should start from beginning for some issues, but we have to promote the technology at the same time. But, yeah. Apparently we're getting back together again, so I'm going to have to call this... To a short. Yeah. Thank you so much for agreeing to be with us. Yeah, nice to meet you, Brian. And again, please All right. let the let the citizens of Malaysia know that ACB radio is available to them to listen to, to learn about what is going on around the world. Yeah. Okay, folks, I'm sorry to interrupt that, but uh, they're getting ready to get started here at the podium, so we're going to go ahead and send you back up there. People have got programs, though, it says it in their heads. Well, I know, but... Yeah. There isn't much we can do, Chris. Because they're not. Yeah. yeah, but we can't help that, Judy. We don't know. Oh, sure. Marianne, there's a gentleman here Jim. Yes. Um, in the talk. Yes. Yep. Yes. Certainly. Certainly. Bye bye. 
That's the one legal thing I'm going to bring up in my, oh, uh, in oh, my well, talk. Well, <laughs> you can, you can come Marianne, the, yeah. the, the, what is the, the uh, what's your kind of schedule okay. for, yeah, yeah, that's for how this is going to work? So I'm going to, going to do, do, well, we have three presentations, yeah. and no, then we're going to have Q&A. Okay. Yeah, so that's, it's just like that. So okay. I'll do it in a different order. I'm going to do it in Jim, Pablo, and then Chris. Okay. And um, yes. and then Chris yeah, question and answers, and then we're going to talk for oh, 10 to 12 minutes, so there should be plenty of time. Okay. And there's not many people, so if they all could move down, it would be good. Right. To have to run a microphone all yeah. over the room would yeah. be... Are more people coming in still? Um, a few are trickling in. I don't expect there's going to be a lot of people, because there's so many options. Right. And then some people will go technology expo. Some right. people go to the pool. Yes. <laughs> it's five, uh, day five. We have been here for a while. No. Yes. No, we didn't. Okay. And anyway, yeah, was, they could argue we heard about Marrakesh Treaty just in the last session. Right. <laughs> Okay, ladies and gentlemen, hello. If we could make our way down to the front of the room, because we do plan to have question and answers, and we don't want our microphone runners doing a marathon every time they have to find a person to speak. More, more may join us, but at the moment our group is quite small, so if we could just make our way to the front, we'll get ready to get going. You reckon, Jim? Reckon we should start? Is it people here? Is it people here? Uh, yeah, let me tell you how many. Uh, 10, 15, 20, 25. Okay, 25. 30. Oh. Yeah, about 30. Okay. Good morning. It's Mary Ann Diamond speaking, immediate past president of World Blind Union. And welcome to our session on moving towards implementation of the Marrakesh Treaty. We heard about the Marrakesh Treaty this morning, but we're going to hear from some particular experts on more detail as we move to implementation. We will have three presentations, each presentation up 10 to 12 minutes, and then we'll have plenty of time for question um, and answer from those of you in the room. So our first topic is different methods of implementing the Marrakesh Treaty. You'll remember that this morning I talked about the Accessible Book Consortium as one, but, and also that there's other methods beginning or underway to implement Marrakesh. And so I'd like to in introduce Jim Fruchterman from Bookshare. Everyone who's a member of Bookshare will know Jim. So Jim, welcome to the floor. All right, thank you. Good morning, WBU and ICEVI. Yay. So, um, so my talk is going to be about practical implementation of the Marrakesh Treaty, on the ground, logistics, the activities that are actually going to get the books in the hands of people who are blind or visually impaired. You're going to hear more from Chris Friend about legal implementation. Of course, most of what I'm going to describe requires that kind of legal implementation, which I'm not going to talk about. But that being said, I am going to talk about one point. Um, you know, from a practical standpoint and a human rights standpoint, um, we're advising any country that is implementing the Marrakesh Treaty, ratifying the Marrakesh Treaty, to avoid adding a commercial limitation to their copyright exception. Um, the effect of these commercial availability limitations are simple. Uh, if you can buy an accessible work, you can't borrow it from a library. And can you imagine? Uh, sighted people going to a library and seeing all the bookshelves empty with a little sign saying, you should go to your local bookshop or you should go online to buy this book. You can't borrow it from a library. 
Sighted people wouldn't stand for that, and I don't think that people with visual impairment should stand for that either. So my strong recommendation is have a copyright exception that doesn't have that commercial limitation. So the Marrakesh Treaty is an exciting global instrument. It's a human rights treaty passed through a copyright intellectual property body. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's going to end, its goal is to end, the accessible book famine for people with visual impairments, people who are blind. Um, you should have the same or better access to books as that experienced by people without disabilities. In practice, copyright exceptions like the ones contemplated by the Marrakesh Treaty significantly lower the barriers to access. No wait to get permission from a publisher or author if you actually get the permission from the publisher or author. Also, the Marrakesh Treaty is going to dramatically lower the cost of delivering accessible works, which is an important part of realizing this vision of more books for everybody. Let's take the example of the United States as a country with a Marrakesh-style copyright exception. We have multiple libraries using our copyright exception, and each one is implementing it in different ways. So for example, you have Learning Ally, formerly known as Recording for the Blind and Dyslexic, with over 80,000 audiobooks focused on education. So their focus is on human narrated audiobooks. Then we have the National Library Service of our Library of Congress. Um, it concentrates on audiobooks, but also does a digital braille and audio service, as well as extensive uh, accessible music works, over 25,000 works. And they tend to focus on senior citizens, but also make it available to adults. And then, of course, I, I have helped found the library known as Bookshare, um, which has extensive collections both for students and for adults with disabilities, with over 450,000 different titles um, right now. And of course, ebooks can be quickly transformed into audio using high-quality digital text-to-speech technology, or large print, or Braille. Because of the copyright exception and what it makes possible, Bookshare can make the promise to any student with a visual impairment in the United States that if they need a book for school and we don't already have it, we will go get it, scan it, proofread it, and add it to our collection. So that not only does that student with a disability have that book, but every other future student who might need that book will be able to access it in under a minute. So once your country has ratified Marrakesh and done any implementing legislation, if that's required, you will begin to reap the harvest of this increased book access. Firstly, you'll be able to create accessible works yourself or ask someone to do it before you. If this issue was murky under copyright law before Marrakesh, once it's ratified, it's going to be very clear that that is completely legal, that you have that power. The organizations that you're members of, disabled persons organizations, will be able to start collections themselves, as well as NGOs that serve the community of people with disabilities, schools, national libraries. They'll all be able to actually start off this process. And you'll also be able to reach out to countries that have works that you might be interested in, libraries in other countries. And our hope is that more and more of those libraries will respond to your demand. Certainly, I can assure you that Bookshare will. It will also be possible for organizations to start up in terms of producing locally accessible works. And this is the really important thing about Marrakesh. People want to read the books that other people in their community are reading. And yes, it's great to be able to have access to 
international collections, but for going to school, for actually participating in employment, for being part of the life of your community, your, your national community, you need access to a full range of locally available content. And so if you want to build your own large-scale library, you also have multiple options. You could build it yourself, or your organization could build it yourself. This is what many wealthy countries have done. That's basically what the DAISY Library Consortium is made up of, many of these national libraries. Um, you, one thing that, that Bookshare is doing is essentially lending its technology infrastructure to other libraries and organizations to start up their own libraries. So, for example, we're doing that not only in the United States, but also in Canada, the United Kingdom, and India already today. And so those other countries outside the United States are paying a fraction of what it costs us to operate Bookshare in the United States because as a nonprofit, our goal is not to necessarily make a profit on this. It's to see that the maximum benefit is there. So this is a, it's a great point of, of leverage. Matter of fact, um, we've talked to some funders about creating 10 national libraries for the blind and people with print disabilities in the developing world, and it would cost us, say, a quarter million dollars a year to do that for 10 countries. So less than $25,000 per country is potentially on the horizon. And compare that to the eight or nine million dollars a year that the US government and other wealthy countries are actually funding Bookshare. So we get, we get that leverage of this exciting technology ratio. And so uh, you also have technology and media options when you're actually implementing the Marrakesh Treaty. My organization is particularly enthusiastic about ebooks because they are 10 to 100 times cheaper to produce than an audiobook. Uh, and they can also be easily connected, you know, converted into all, any one of those accessible formats. In our mind, you can just push a button and turn one of our ebooks into a DAISY book or into an MP3 set of files or enlarged print on a page or enlarged print on a screen or refreshable Braille or Braille through an embosser. So, the great thing about this is that more and more of the publishing industry is moving to this digital form as their standard effort. And of course, for that we can thank the, the famous blind uh, technologist, George Kersher, uh, who I'm proud to announce actually just joined my organization, Benetech, in the last month. So, so we're lucky to have George on the, on the team. Um, of course, not all languages can be easily converted with technology. Um, you know, there's quite a number of languages in the world that don't have a great text-to-speech technology. And for those languages, we're still going to need human-narrated audio because it's going to be the practical way for many people to hear it. But we still believe that the e-book is important for the creation of large print and Braille. And, for example, right now in India, we're doing text-to-speech for English, Hindi, and Tamil. But for Marathi, which is our fourth language, there isn't a good text-to-speech, so we're doing both human-narrated audio and an e-book so we can deliver Braille. Another benefit of the Marrakesh Treaty being implemented in your country is that you'll gain, almost certainly, increased publisher cooperation. For the most part, publishers have been a partner with the blind community in providing access. But in this new world where more and more people are going to digital formats, having a copyright exception puts us in a terrific negotiating position. So what we basically say is, look, um, under US copyright law, we don't have to pay you a royalty or get your permission, but isn't it silly if you already have a digital version of the book 
for us to buy a used copy, chop off the binding, scan it, proofread it. It's, it's really duplicative waste work. So what we do is we go to the publishers and say, will you just please hand us your crown jewels, all of your books? Oh, hand them to us for free and give us the international rights that you have. And 850 publishers have said yes to that, that stunning proposition. And let me tell you what that means in terms of ending the book famine, right? We are still scanning 500 books a month when someone in our community asks us for a book and we have to do it. We get more than 5,000 books each and every month from those publishers in high-quality digital formats that we can instantly convert to text-to-speech, large print, or braille. So that's a giant leap forward. And what that means now is that in the United States, if a person with a visual impairment, you know, hears about a book that they need for school, or someone is recommending it, or it's on national public radio, whatever it might be, the odds that they'll find it already in Bookshare now on a demand-weighted basis is more than 90%. That's what ending the book famine looks like, instant access to the books that everybody else is reading. And because we've had this nice position with the publishers to getting them to give us international rights, over 250,000 of our 450,000 books are available outside the United States, are available in just about every country on the planet. So our vision for a world with widespread adoption of the Marrakesh Treaty, it's bright. The power to end the book famine will be in our collective hands, with copyright helping us to our goal rather than hindering us. Bookshare became the largest library in the United States for people with print disabilities because of people power, blind people power. It's now a phenomenon called crowdsourcing. Yay! <laughs> it's, people call it crowdsourcing, but what we told America's blind community was that if you scanned a book, we would add it to Bookshare. One blind man contributed over 10,000 books when Bookshare was started. He had been scanning a book a day. Honestly, I think he enslaved his family to scan a book a day. But he'd been scanning a book a day for 10 years. And in one swoop, we had the best science fiction and fantasy collection you could imagine. And of course, the same thing happened with Christian romance, or uh, lesbian vampire erotica, or you know, all the bestsellers. Whatever you are interested in reading, because it's not up to us as librarians to decide what you want to read. If you want to read it, you should have it. And when we put the power of deciding which books we should have in our library in the hands of blind people, all the books that other people are reading suddenly ended up in our collection. So that force, the combined efforts of this community is available to help solve the book famine globally. For example, in India, Bookshare operates the same way we do in the United States. If any person in India finds a book that they need, because India has one of the best copyright exceptions you can imagine, they were the first country to ratify Marrakesh, now they can go ahead and scan it and add it into the Bookshare collection so it'll be available in India. And of course, now we're looking towards what happens when more and more countries can exchange that content. So in India, of course, there are dozens of NGOs, schools, and disabled person organizations doing the same thing. So our dream is that the blind people of the world gain access to, to the sum of all those efforts, whether it's you personally, your organizations, NGOs, libraries, whether it's the DAISY libraries, the publishers, or the Accessible Book Consortium, or whether it's Bookshare, Ending the book famine globally is a joint effort, and together we'll ensure that blind people have access to the books they need for education, employment, and full inclusion in society. Let's go make that happen. Thank you.
Thank you, Jim. Call to action, always a good way to end. Our next speaker is Pablo um, Lucana from um, Argentina. Everyone knows how hard Latin America has worked towards this treaty. 10 of the 20 ratifications come from that region. And this man has done a lot of legwork and a lot of uh, miles to support Latin American countries in ratification. And he isn't stopping. He has more projects in mind. So, Pablo, uh, come and talk about implementation in Latin America. You just come to the right. Your left, my right. Sorry. Yeah. Buenos días a todos y todas. Voy a hablar and en I'm going to be español. speaking in Spanish. Uh, yeah. I would like to share uh, some of the experiences from Latin America, not only in the work of ratification, as well as thinking about the implementation of the treaty. And after listening to the presentation from Jim about Bookshare, and uh, listening about the numbers and the amount of work that you can do in the United States. And in Latin America, we feel very small. But, um, uh, of course, uh, the important thing of the America Treaty is that um, what, what it's looking for is to be able to take advantage of the maximum advantage of all the resources, and it's a treaty that will allow us or has to allow us to be able to change the access to, to reading in the countries that are developed as well as the ones that have less resources uh, from the realities of each one of the countries, uh, but also thinking about the work and the implementation in a global way because nowadays we have the technology, all the technology we need to be able to have these books available in a global fashion. And so first of all, we're going to be talking about how in Latin America we were able to um, have these 10 ratifications, half of them are the ratifications uh, that we have received so far. In Latin America, it, it's a region that has the peculiarity that the majority of the countries, 18 or of, out of 19, we speak the same language. And Brazil, which is the only one that speaks another language, on a one, from one part, it is a huge country where you have a lot of people that are blind that do need to read. And on the other hand, with the language also is very similar, so there's a lot of integration and a lot of exchange. And so this, from being a linguistic community, being a linguistic community makes us have a culture of exchange, of um, of working jointly, all these countries and these different blind organizations. And this allows us to have the proposal for the Marrakesh uh, Treaty to be able to share the books and to be able to exchange books and to be able to uh, add the materials that are being produced in every one of the locations. And that makes it very important for a region. And when we were negotiating the treaty, yeah, sometimes we were thinking that the treaty was going to allow only that the many books that are done in the richer countries could reach the poorer countries. Uh, however, another dimension of the treaty is that the countries that are 
underdeveloped that do smaller efforts with less resources uh, with n several organizations in each one of the countries. It allows us to be able to add to we what each one of us is doing. We can articulate the efforts and in that way with a little bit that we do have of the resources that each one of us has, then we can add the most amount of books and to be able to serve the most amount of demand. And for us uh, to be able to work the implementation from the from the Desde Black, which is the Latin American Union of Blind People, we believe that what's most important is to be able to generate in the organizations for each one of the countries the interest and the knowledge of the treaty itself and to be able to gather in each one of the countries the different actors that could be working not only at the political level in order to be able to have the ratification being done, as well as the technical and practical level in order to generate the networks and the different exchange spaces and to be able to improve the production. So in because of that, at first we worked with... Um, the selection or detection of a great level of amount of references, people who are blind from different organizations, from blind organizations, that who would be working jointly within each country in order to be able to find the ratification and then the implementation of the treaty. And as an organization at the regional level, then we supported these groups, these work groups for each one of those countries, not, not only giving the political support whenever they were going to be speaking with their governments, as well as giving them the technical information about the treaty and the different, uh, different elements included within it and the different ways of being able to implement it and use it. And that allowed us to have a lot of countries that could be a, generating new groups and have different uh, alliances and different groups within the, um, the uh, intellectual rights organizations, the blind organizations, and also the libraries. And also that's why we were able to affect politically, and that was actually something that was done very quickly, then also because the governments were always supporting the, this, the negotiation of this treaty. And that allowed us so that today at 10 out of 19 countries are now part of the treaty in Latin America, and two more are very close to being so, Honduras and Panama, which are, we only need the signature from the president to be able to ratify it. And we're hoping in a short term there will be even more countries in Latin America. However, because uh, always in this process that we've been participating since 2009, Every time that we reach a goal, then there's something else that we have to do in order to be able to have the work be fulfilling. And at this moment, the uh, treaty is going to be starting to be taking action. And in Latin America, we have a huge challenge, which is that the, the Spanish-speaking community is the one that has the most amount of countries that have ratified the treaty. And we're the ones that have more possibilities of right now to be able to show results. And in order to be able to show results, we need to be working very strongly in the alliances, in the alliances between the different libraries and recognizing in every country who is the one that produces the materials, who um, find um, the, the law, the domestic law for each one of the countries, uh, so that it allows that all these organizations that produce the material or the new ones that could produce and distribute the material could be 
authorized entities and they can exchange books and they could uh, use the different exceptions. And in order to be able to do that, we have been thinking about working in different uh, gatherings, uh, working gatherings that we're going to be having done in the next few months with the countries that have already ratified, where we have organizations that can participate, the blind organizations, and the different organizations or state organizations that will be intervening in anything that has to do with the production and distribution of books. And um, our idea is to be able to right away have uh, working plans and actions that are very concrete. And some of the possibilities, for example, that we have in Latin America is that it's similar to, to Bookshare, but it's a small, much smaller size. And in Latin America, we have a Tifro Libro, which is a digital uh, library, which has the books and every every book that the, every organization or every person is scanning or makes into a digital form, they get all together so that they can be available for everyone. And in Argentina, we've also developed a very strong work with the different uh, uh, publishers And they don't give us, they, we're not doing 5,000 books a month uh, because they don't do that in Argentina. But in about two years, the publishers have uh, allowed us to have the files for about 3,000 books. And those books, as Jim was saying, are books that have a much better quality because we're taking the originally directly from the publisher and we only need to convert them, adapt them when they're as cool text and uh, we have to make them available from that moment. And in, uh, on the other hand, in Latin America, we have a lot of important libraries uh, for spoken books, uh, books that have been recorded uh, with a human voice and we use in general with voluntary With volunteers, and we have been. It's taken a long time to be able to record those, but we have those in Colombia, in Uruguay, in Argentina. We have two libraries that have an important amount of audiobooks with the Marrakesh Treaty uh, being activated. At least today, Argentina and Uruguay could now get those books together, put them in a hard disk, all those audio program audiobooks and send them to the libraries of the other countries that have ratified the Marrakesh Treaty. And in a lot of countries in Latin America we have a lot of efforts. In Colombia, for example, we have a lot of public libraries, a lot of public libraries that are going to be giving access to books or that they scan them in the library itself for the students or for the people who have visual impairment or that they are accessing other libraries and they allow the books to be able to reach the users at the local level or convert them into Braille or convert them into audio format or text-to-speech. And... Estas bibliotecas también tienen que poder trabajar en red, tienen que poder sumar esos materiales. Ese es nuestro gran desafío. Ahora que tenemos el tratado, ahora que tenemos en muchos países grupos de trabajo conformados eh, con los distintos actores, primero fortalecer las alianzas nacionales y ya con el tratado en vigor empezar a hacer que el material que hay en cada país pueda llegar a los demás. ¿Cuál es el problema que tenemos ante este desafío en América Latina? 
uno de los principales problemas es el financiamiento. Eh, si bien el Tratado de Marrakech ofrece un marco legal que permite el intercambio, que facilita la producción, que permite aprovechar los recursos que tenemos, todavía hay muchos materiales que no se pueden producir o todavía estas ideas de enviar los libros de un país al otro, que son simples tecnológicamente, no siempre se llegan a concretar por las cuestiones de financiamiento. Y otro aporte importante de Marrakech es esto, que con un tratado, con el tema del acceso a la lectura, como un tema de derechos humanos puesto en la agenda, está generando que los gobiernos tengan que comprometerse a apoyar eh, este tipo de proyectos. Los mismos gobiernos están interesados en buscar que el Tratado de Marrakech sea una realidad y las organizaciones internacionales también. Y es importante que podamos trabajar eh, en las alianzas, en la cooperación entre las distintas regiones, entre las distintas bibliotecas y hacer que esto que hoy es un marco legal adecuado, que hoy es una cantidad de libros que ya están fáciles de producir, fáciles de compartir, sea después del 30 de septiembre una realidad bien concreta que nos permita llegar con todos estos libros que hoy están dispersos en distintas organizaciones a las personas con discapacidad de toda la región. Eh, por eso también en esta etapa es importantísimo que cuando en cada país se adecue la ley al Tratado de Marrakech, lo hagamos en función de nuestro contexto, de nuestras realidades. Of our reality, of the organizations that each country can have. There is not only one way in which how the law, or which is the authorized entity, or which are the authorized entities that are going to make use of the treaty, but that we have to see it in function to our reality. And therefore, the most important thing is that the organizations and the people who have visual limitations participate, that we be the ones to refer to working with the government. Let us be the ones that propose the way in which we can render effective and make a reality the treaty. It is important, I insist, that we work on the political level generating the laws as also on the practical and technical aspects in saying this is the road today, the most adequate road today. This is the road adequate in our country today and also working in contact at an international level and in America, in Latin America. This is something that luckily we are able to do because of the proximity, the geographical proximity, the linguistic proximity that we have and also because all of the organizations are gathered in an organization, Azulac, which is the regional for the World Union for Blind People in Latin America. Many opportunities, many changes, but now we encounter 
the great challenge. And I hope that in the next assembly within four years, we will be able to share with you the fantastic changes in Latin America and hopefully in other parts of the country we will be able to attain with the Marrakesh Treaty. And that we can tell you that not only Latin America worked in a network, but we work also in network with Spain or when Spain can ratify or with libraries of other of other languages because it's very difficult in our region to find books in other languages. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Pablo, for uh, telling us about the work, the tremendous work in Latin America. And just imagine when the European Union sorts itself out and Spain can ratify how many books our Latin American friends can have immediate access to. Our third speaker is someone known to many of us for many years, Chris Friend. Chris has worked tirelessly um, in the very early days of our work to begin the treaty work and um, continuing now supporting us in our, in our ratification and implementation work, particularly in African countries. So Chris is going to talk a little bit about the um, implementation guide and, you know, some advice, I think, would be a good word of what we can all do next. Chris, thank you. Yep. Yep. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. And um, it's very exciting. I have been eight years with Marrakesh in its formation. And uh, it's just great to be at this point. In thinking of this presentation this morning, it, suddenly I recognized that Canada had a hand at the beginning, the very beginning, way back in 1986. Because a Canadian barrister, Wanda Knoll, was commissioned by WIPO and UNESCO to develop a report looking at the uh, need, the opportunities of producing and also distributing worldwide accessible works for visually impaired readers. Her report was presented to the Berne Executive Committee and accepted by it in 1986. But unfortunately, the international world then did nothing about it. WBU came back to this in 2006 at WIPO when we asked and successfully asked for a, um, a survey to be done around the world to see how many countries had exceptions for the blind nationally because copyright was a national jurisdiction. The Judith Sullivan report showed that 57, I think it was, under 60, under a third of the world had any formal copyright exceptions in favor of blind people. So Canada started way back then. And funnily enough, on the 30th of June this year, I happened to be in Geneva. I happened to be in the office of the copyright director, Michel Woods, and Canada provided that exciting 20th ratification that actually made the treaty go operational on the 30th of September. 
So well done, Canada, at both ends, and we're really grateful, obviously, for that. I want to briefly talk on uh, the way forward, the way forward, because, as Marianne said in her plenary this morning, the treaty is only usable on the 30th of September for just those 20 countries that have ratified 170 other countries, most of us, will not have any benefit on this glorious launch day. And so that's what I want to really talk about is how can we, those 170 countries, catch up? So let me define our starting point. Because the Marrakesh, it, 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 it moves, it changes. Our starting point today is that the WBU Marrakesh Treaty got us the treaty text. But now it is up to us to take it and have it implemented at the national level. And the treaty that we will get for our national visually impaired readers will be the treaty we deserve because of the effort we put in to get a good treaty. It will be implemented by your government and there are certain points in the treaty which are open to national interpretation. So it's not the treaty text that we got in Geneva which will automatically come down. I will talk about that later on. But we get what we deserve. Today already, the authors, the publishers, are already lobbying, talking to our governments about their interpretation that they want into national law in our countries. We must stand up. As Colin said on Sunday morning, we have to turn up to our government, our copyright offices, and provide solutions which meet our interpretation of the treaty. So that is really the starting point. We must go into action, and our action will be rewarded with the treaty that our visually impaired readers need. Let us remember, we are trustees of the reading needs of our members. Do you know, I could employ Colin as my scriptwriter because again this morning he said a very important thing. He said in his opening remarks that the working together, WBU and ICVI, added strength to the outcome of our deliberations and, and our work. Because the two of us are more powerful in saying to the world what the situation is and what we need than just one. And that's my first point in going forward. We are producing a toolkit. We've, Africa had a toolkit. We will be revising it and strengthening it in the light of this uh, uh, assembly here. And the first thing that is in the toolkit 
that Africa has been using has been the need to develop a what can be called a right to a national right to read alliance, a national Marrakesh alliance. You you can call it what you will, but basically, it is bringing together all interested stakeholders. Let us, the World Blind Union, not try on our own, or ICVI, not try on our own to persuade our government to give us a good interpretation of the treaty. Let us work together, because there are, there are different partners. There is the WBU. There is the National Disability Council. We, WBU, will talk about the reading for our blind people. The Disability Council can put forward the relevance of the treaty in terms of the government's CRPD commitment. ICVI joining the alliance can put forward the relevance to education of, of, of vision-impaired children. Other partners, special education, brings the ministry, brings the government into the alliance. Special education unit would greatly need the treaty for textbook delivery, accessible textbook delivery, especially in, 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 in mainstream education. So they are another partner. Our undergrads in all our universities who are visually impaired, when the faculty lecturer points them in the direction of the university library or the faculty library specifically to get a reference book down to, to, to read it relevant to the studies, they will depend upon the librarian in that library helping them to get an accessible version of that book. Librarians around the world, last week in their congress in Columbus, Ohio, they committed themselves to work with the World Blind Union and our national partners around the world to bring the ratification issue into force. So in your country, you will have access to librarians of different uh, uh, bases uh, and they will work alongside and they will put forward the library issue of the Marrakesh, how they can then serve a visually impaired person who needs a book uh, from, from you know, a, a library shelf of print books. All of these partners who are going to come alongside into this alliance are going to be able to tell the same story but widen and strengthen the impact of the campaign, which is what Colin was saying this morning. So the, the first thing that we are talking about, I think, in going forward is to, in our countries, not to try and do it ourselves, but to bring together a powerful alliance of all the different stakeholders who have anything to do with it. DAISY are mapping all their contact points around the world. They have offered to us to flag up any DAISY, not only the members and the associate members, but also the people who are not members but are using the DAISY pipeline, downloading it and using it to create DAISY books. There are lots of people all over the world 
in our countries who will be able to come and join that alliance. I really commend to all of you that that is a starting point, a very good starting point in the countries where we're working. So what is the alliance going to do? Well, there are two parts of work. Ratification is the, 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 the first bit. We've all been talking about it, if our country hasn't ratified. So we, the, the alliance needs to develop a relationship with the Copyright Office, the Intellectual Property Division in the government, and to talk about uh, progressing the ratification issue. Go and find out, is the government going to ratify? Has it started? What is the process? What is the timeline? Who are the decision makers? So finding all of this out, there have been some very good examples of of this starting point. I remember Ghana uh, in 2014, just literally six months after the Marrakesh uh, Diplomatic Conference, the, the visually impaired Ghana Blind Union and libraries got together and went to copyright and asked them to hold a, an open, transparent, consultative workshop on the Marrakesh Treaty ratification, bringing the publishers together with the beneficiaries. Some people said, oh, why, why, why would you want to... It was a very sound reason, because... The publishers then had in public to come out and put their interpretation, what they wanted, and the, and the, the restrictions that they wanted from the text. And we were able to, the Ghana Blind Union was able to counter that with what they wanted, what their interpretation was. So it's very useful to, to start the ratification process by making a relationship with the Copyright Office and um, <clears throat> suggesting, for example, that if, if, if all parties and government ministries, everyone with an interest came together and had a, 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 a workshop to explore the, the position, then Copyright Office understands the scene. And then, because they, they have to work with everybody, and they have to to uh, bring everybody together to a point that there is reasonable consensus, and then put it forward up through the government machine. So that's the first thing that this alliance needs to do: is to engage and and get the get the ratification process definitely underway. And to follow it and to offer the Copyright Office, as, as Colin was saying on Sunday, make solutions available. Work it out and help the Copyright Office by, by not just taking them the problem, oh, we haven't got any books and we've got this treaty, so get us some books. No, no. Go and work on the ratification issue and say, share with the Copyright Office that you have interest in education ministry, culture ministry, and you could, you know, you could do some consultation with them to bring them on board and uh, work with politicians, parliamentarians. With this wide alliance of four, five, six, seven different groups, you should be able to pull together a very powerful group of parliamentarians, MPs, senators, whatever you have in your country. 
Because these people will help you unblock. When, 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 when progress seems slow and, and there are some sort of hurdles that uh, are ahead of you, you can use the parliamentarians to, who are totally on side with you to start asking embarrassing questions in important places and unblocking the system. So that's the ratification thing to, to, to get that up and running. Ratification can be done in parallel but at a different speed to the, uh, the second piece of work, which is the domestication, the legislative uh, amendments to absorb the provisions of the Marrakesh Treaty into your national copyright law. So once you've got the ratification process up and running, and when the government, be aware that the government will in due course, and this is relevant to the 20 countries as well that have already ratified, once they've ratified, they still have to uh, embed the provisions of, they have to make their national copyright law harmonious with the provisions of the Marrakesh Treaty. And this is where you need, your alliance needs to quite clearly state that they want consultative status. As that legislation is being drafted, you expect, as the publishers will, you expect to see the drafts and have the opportunity to comment on it. Then the final stage is when it goes through the... Uh, it'll go to Cabinet, probably, possibly, and eventually it'll go to Parliament, and that's where you have a final chance of making amendments uh, more to your satisfaction if, if some of the things have, have uh, you know, not been adopted as you thought. There are options in the treaty where the government can interpret it for themselves, as I said. Some of these. Article 4, and obviously in the toolkit you, you must have a treaty copy and you need to uh, be able to, to know the treaty in its main impact uh, for us. But... Article 4 is on the domestic exception, giving it's the starting point it gives the government power to allow us to use the Marrakesh in-country. Article 4 is all about uh, the using it. The, the rights holders, the publishers and the uh, authors, are certainly around Africa pushing for Article 4.5 to be implemented in their favour. Article 4.5 just basically says the government may, if they wish, uh, allow remuneration to be built in to their national law so that the blind, using the treaty, using the exception, will have to pay the publishers a royalty. Now, what we need to do is we need to lobby more efficiently than the publishers. Because we need to point out to the legislative drafters and the Copyright Office that Article 4 in its entirety is about taking it into national law. Article 4.2 states that the blind can use the treaty to make a cop an accessible copy without permission of the publishers when there is not when the publishers haven't delivered. 
They do say that we can make that copy if we have legal entitlement to the book. What that means is, on the one hand, I have a physical ink print copy of that book. I bought it at a bookshop. I want to make it accessible, but I have legal entitlement because here is my copy. On the other hand, it can be that you have access to a library which has a copy. That is also giving you legitimate access to that book. So 4.2 includes that you must have legal access. 4.2 goes on to say it must be made accessible. The program that's making it accessible is in a not-for-profit basis. Okay? Non-commercial, not-for-profit basis. Now, the publishers, in arguing for 4.5 remuneration, are, are they're, they're hiding those other points which are in our favour. So we need to, dis, uh, to take to the legislative drafters and copyright office the comparison of Article 4.2, surely, because they haven't delivered the books, we have legal entitlement, and it's not-for-profit, and in fact, we are having to pay the cost of making it accessible ourselves. So the publishers are having no costs. So how dare they ask for remuneration? So do you see what I mean? We have to, we have to put forward a different argument to, to uh, the, the, the legislators. We have to twin Article 4.2 with Article 4.5. We should win that case every time. If we, if, we are, if, if we put it forward carefully and, and, and things. So that's the sort of work that we can do in the final thing, the legislature, the domestication. Okay? Yeah. So we have, as Marianne said this morning and as she gave to Aubrey, this guidelines, it's a very full analysis of each article and the interpretation of each article that we want, the WBU want, the uh, governments to, to uh, take on board as they put it into their legislation. The, the guide was written with good input from some of the leading member state negotiators in Geneva. So it's a very... And, and, and it reflects their understanding of what they actually achieved in negotiating that treaty. And it's an article by article. There's a, a, a summary of it. You will get it. We will, we will make sure that it's in your hands to take and, and, and de uh, develop a discussion around it. Give it to the legislators so that they can use it to give us what we want. Basically, as I said at the beginning, we got the treaty. The WBU team got the words in Geneva. We felt in our heart here in Orlando. It's now up to us to go home, remembering that we are trustees of the reading needs of our members to deliver action. 
the treaty that you will get in your country, that your members will benefit from, will totally depend on the effort that you and the team around you manage to put into it. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for that very comprehensive presentation. I wanted to ensure we had some time for people in the room to make comments, ask questions. So um, I think, Stephanie, are you here? Yes. Yes? I think we have microphones. So if you raise your hand, introduce yourself. If it's a question to one of the panellists, identify the person. But please try and be as brief as possible so as many as possible can speak. So do we have someone? Yes. Uh, Scott, I can you. tell already. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Miriam. This is Bian, Bian Jikuta oh. from Liberia. Oh, I was wrong. Uh, Chris, <laughs> we, we in Liberia, first, in fact, before the government rectified the America's Treaty, we first engaged the Copyright Office, and we had the legal... Uh, they, we, we, were, we succeeded in harnessing and removing all of the hurdles before rectifying <laughs> the America. Miriam Daimo, I sent you a copy of that. Yes. Where the government of Liberia removed that part that had obligation uh, to, to ask for permission from authors and publishers. Mm -hmm. So we first succeeded in getting that done first before we even rectified America's treaty. Mm -hmm. What we haven't done, for your information, the government has been slow in making a report to the headquarters of uh, WIPO. Well, and that's unfortunate. And sometimes it appears that we are running faster than the government. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah, we, we had a meeting with uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, at the Re Republic of Liberia in June. I think it was June 20-something. And we put this before the Minister of Foreign Affairs. That, Look, your, Liberia has made a progress after Mali. Liberia is second on the continent. But you need to make progress by going to deposit this to the headquarters of WIPO and make announcement to the world of the progress you've made. However, what I wanted to say finally is that is it possible for us to have a guide of uh, what, you, what you give to Aubrey Webster this morning because it's also going to help us to empower more blind people to have a knowledge of... Uh, you know, the, the, the America's treaty and the rights they have to enjoy. And uh, also as leaders, you know, when you begin to do cross-border and distribution of books, we can also use it as a guide to benefit from it. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I apologize for calling you Scott and I apologize to Scott. <laughs> um, Thanks. Yeah, the guide that we have developed, and I presented a copy to Aubrey today, will be available to everyone. Um, it, as I described, the near final text, so we're just finalising the text. We hope it to get it published by Cambridge Press. We will then have, we'll also have copies on the website, and we'll have, over time, translated into Spanish and French. So this is a tool. Uh, we see this as a major tool for our members when talking with governments, copyright officers, um, so that you can actually participate in conversations and not be um, left feeling uninformed um, or talked over by governments. 
And I share your view that, you know, often we do work faster than governments. All governments seem to work slow. Do we have another question? Comment? Yes, uh, yes Scott, Mary Ann, this, is, this Scott. is actually Scott. Uh, <laughs> Scott. I'm Scott Labar from Colorado, and I wanted to make a comment uh, about commercial availability. Jim touched on it. Mm -hmm. And this is a very, I think, important argument we can make to legislatures and legislators about why there is absolutely no need to put any kind of commercial availability restriction in law. And it is because of the way the treaty sets out definitions. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind that what the treaty authorizes an entity to do is to make an accessible copy of a book. So you have to affirmatively do something. If a publisher really would produce a book that is out of the box, so to speak, accessible in every conceivable format that you would need, then there would be nothing for an authorized mm. entity to do. Exactly. And an authorized entity cannot simply take a copy of a book, do nothing to it, and pass it off into the hands of its patrons, of its eligible persons, or as the treaty says, beneficiary persons. So in a sense, commercial availability is already in the treaty. Mm -hmm. We don't, the problem with these commercial availability clauses is that they say things like, well, if the, uh, an accessible copy is available commercially in a reasonable amount of time, then you, you can't make an accessible copy. Well, the term reasonable amount of time is so vague and quite frankly scary. We must insist upon the same book at the same time. So those are the comments I wanted to make regarding commercial availability. Thank, thank, you. thank you, Scott, and I think you make very good points. And um, one thing I would say, there are countries that have a commercial availability clause in their um, national law, not many. Please do not let your governments introduce a commercial availability clause if you don't have one. And I think you put some very good arguments um, why. And the other thing I'd add to that is the provisions of the treaty talk about a format is the format that the beneficiary requires. Yes. So if there's an audio version and I require Braille, then there is not an excess, there's not a version available. And just for everyone's information, Scott is our representative on the Accessible Book Consortium at WIPO and um, has done a great job. Uh, and in his turn, we have also managed to get are now a little team of blind people on the Accessible Book Consortium. So I think that adds a lot of value to the work of ABC and also, you know, the, the voice of the beneficiaries is being heard at the table. So, Scott, we appreciate your work there. Uh, Jim would like to make a comment. You can just make from there, Jim. Oh, my, there we go. Um, I think the other point about commercial availability, it gets back to my point about equal treatment of visual impairment visually impaired people compared to people without visual impairments. Um, the fact that there are free public libraries in the United States has not destroyed the book industry, notwithstanding the publisher's claims. Um, and, you know, many, many people 
choose to purchase a book rather than borrowing it from a library, even though that's something that's available to them. I think that people with vision impairments should be equally treated the same way. We, the National Federation of the Blind, are campaigning for the right of people with disabilities to purchase mainstream accessible books that work for them out of the box. But I think that long term, the role of the library for the blind and, and disabled should be like the role of the library, the public library is a secondary source of books for the person too poor to purchase the book mm. or mm. the student or, or person studying who wants to look at 10 books but doesn't want to buy 10 books while doing research. Um, that's the future that we're actually aiming for. Um, but in the meanwhile, you know, we need to fully utilize these exceptions because um, so often people with visual impairments are accidentally locked out of e-books. So that's, that's an important issue to keep in mind and Thanks. why we don't need commercial availability. Yeah. Thanks, Jim, for that. Do we have any more questions, comments from the floor? Thank you. Um, I am Mohammed from the Gambia, and I am the only and first visually impaired magistrate in my whole country. Um, my question will differ just a bit from Marrakesh Treaty. That is, um, the laws of the Gambia has been compiled into 16 different volumes, each of which is very, very bulky. Mm -hmm. And uh, these uh, 16 volumes are into scanned PDF format. And the software I use in taking record of proceedings is called Dolphin Guide, which is not able to open scanned PDF documents. Mm -hmm. And these are actually also not available in Braille. So usually I find it very difficult until I use a scanner, which is not also perfect in bringing out the whole text. So I want to ask whether there is a, um, anyone representing any institution or any available institution that can help in making these 16 volumes of the laws of the Gambia into an accessible soft copy format or Braille. Thank you. Who would like to answer? Sure. Um, I, think, I think, you know, pass the Marrakesh Treaty in the Gambia, and we'll be able to do that for you because that's what we do for blind lawyers and judges regularly in the United States. To pick another example, in Kenya, which has not ratified the treaty yet, um, a blind attorney went to one of the major legal publishers and got them to provide us with permission to do all of their books. But technically, this is what we do every day and libraries like us do every day. And so as soon as you have the legal you know, permission to do so through either permission from the publisher or ratifying the Marrakesh Treaty, libraries like ours would be happy to, to help out. And as a matter of fact, um, our largest book production facility globally is in Nairobi, where we use Kenyan University students to proofread books for blind people, and they do a fabulous job, and we would, they would love to do more for us. There you are, there, Mohammed. There's um, someone willing to help, but please ratify <laughs> so we can help faster. Um, next comment or question? Hi, Marianne. This is Michelle Woods from WIPO, and thank you to all the speakers uh, thus far um, for the very uh, useful comments on practical implementation of the treaty. I wanted to just very specifically respond to the last comment by saying in the short term, at least with respect to intellectual property laws, we have a service at WIPO called WIPO-LEX that has most of the laws in 
the original languages and often in English as well, we would be happy to try to at least provide the intellectual property laws um, and I, they are supposed to have all that material in accessible um, PDF format. So we would be happy to work with the gentleman to at least give him access to that for the moment. Thank you, that's very good. Mohammed, don't leave the room without connecting with Michelle and with Jim. Um, anyone else? Yes, we have someone getting the mic. Um, this question is a Who is this, sorry? Uninformed. Um, this question might be a little bit uninformed, but I um, wanted to understand better if um, having the United States ratify uh, Marrakesh, um, I was happy to hear that it sounds like um, as far as loaning books out, maybe that it's not stopping us from loaning books out, um, but I wondered if there are uh, advantages to having the U.S. Uh, ratify it, um, both, I guess, mostly as far as loaning it, I guess there must be for, for borrowing it. Um, and I also wondered um, about whether the same would be true in, in Spain, and if I understand correctly that Spain has a, a lot of uh, accessible books um, that, that would be useful. Maybe Jim can answer the question on the US, but just in relation to Spain, mm -hmm. yes, you're correct, Spain does have over 100,000 accessible books, and they would love to share them with Latin American countries and other Spanish-speaking people in lots of countries of the world. Unfortunately, they live, or fortunately, they live in the European Union. They, <laughs> Depends. Technically... Yeah, they, they have done all the in-country work yeah. to accede to the treaty but because they're in the European Union, there's a bit of a battle happening about who can ratify first the region or the country. So Spain is on board, ready to go. And Jim, would you like to give an update on the US? Yes, I mean, I think, I think you've heard from people that, that for Marrakesh to be fully realized, you need the countries who are major publishers to actually ratify Marrakesh. So for European languages, you know, the United Kingdom, Spain, France, the United States. That's what it's going to take for Marrakesh to really take off. Mm. So, and, and it's important to the United States. We're currently part of a coalition of groups led by the blindness groups, especially Scott Labar and the National Federation of the Blind that you just heard from. Um, there are active negotiations right now with a hope to try to get the United States to ratify the Marrakesh Treaty during this Congress, the Congress whose term ends in a few months. And um, we have indications from both the Republican and Democratic leadership in the Senate that they would consider ratifying the treaty as long as we can get all the stakeholders to agree on exactly how it will be implemented in U.S. law. And that agreement is at sort of the 96 to 98 percent level, and we're trying to conclude that last part. So that will be critical for us to be able to export books and import books. And because the United States is a nation of immigrants, you know, there are many, many people in the United States that would love to read languages from Europe, from mm. Africa, from Asia, you know, all over the world. And so we've been explaining why this is a benefit to Americans, as well as the expectation that we will be a net exporter of accessible materials. And that will, for us, make the difference between 250,000 books and 450,000 books. And we do get requests for some of those other 200,000 books that we don't currently have the right to serve outside the U.S., Thanks, Jim. Next comment or question. And if you could say your name that, and where you're from, it would be just helpful for us. Uh, 
Merci beaucoup. Uh, merci, Madame la Présidente. Thank you, Mrs. Uh, thank you, President Mouchard from Senegal. First and foremost, I would like to uh, thank um, Latin America because with 10 countries who ratified uh, the treaty, they contributed enormously in the implementation process which will come to term at the end of the month, uh, September. They, and they therefore contributed quite quite a lot. And not quite, and we don't know exactly, we don't understand quite what they said, uh, because we did the same thing for the, for the implementation, we did the same thing in Senegal. For example, I, we can tell you that we have a lot of hope because the text, the treaty's text, is currently on the table of the uh, president of the country we have also we have also uh, the civil society on our side in senegal we we trained uh, the people who communicate the message journalists traditional medias also for us religious uh, religious officials and also we we put together a petition so that the Marrakesh Treaty can become an international issue but until now I have to admit that we have not we do not we have not arrived at a ratification I would like to say to know what else can we do thanks respond to this question what else to do in Senegal to get ratification sounds like you've got some good implementation and planning for implementation things underway Chris any suggestions um, all I can suggest is that um, I know I, I know you have a, a an, an alliance of uh, several partners there uh, including Sightsavers and uh, the library movement um, between you, identify all the parliamentarians, senators that you can, and try and bring some publicity. Just try and get the, the, the parliamentarians to ask questions inside the government and try and bring the whole issue to the media. And um, especially, you have a you have a good opportunity because you can do this against the 30th of September. Hmm. Yeah. So use that as 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 a, a reason for bringing it to the attention of parliamentarians and the media, because that is the day that it goes live. And if you have ratified, you can use it. And given Canada has ratified, there's French content that you will be able to access. Pablo? Yes, just stay speaking. Eh, sí, algunas, 
Algunas cuestiones de las que planteamos en América Latina. And seeing in Latin America to see if maybe they can help you. We were looking for, first of all, to generate this alliance and um, that the organizations of the blind jointly with the intellectual property rights offices could get together with the parliamentary parliamentarians and with the different uh, ministers for uh, for external relations and all the different uh, places where the ratification is going to be going through and just being there insisting, insisting, insisting and, uh, and having the meetings with the support from the regional organization because we know that our countries when the support comes from another country whenever we go when they're when we go there Argentinas are going by way if we're supported by the other Latin American countries we have a lot more strength that, uh, as, in, instead of just going as our Argentinians so if you have a support letter or a document from the African Union or from the WBU that can support uh, our work as a as an alliance and at the same time uh, of doing these meetings with the different actors and we can do, also do press conferences in every country where we're going to be managing the topic we try to do press conferences so that the topic can get to the media and so that an authority or an authority group could be make a commitment publicly and that's very important and at the same time just being there just continuing continuing consulting with different national organizations and asking the regional organizations to also send notes and ask questions and apply pressure because that's what makes the state when you're going too slow that pushes a little bit quicker and so the insistence and the persistence can constantly of all the people who are interested I hope that some of those ideas might be helpful to um, you in Senegal. Do we have any other comments or questions? Yes. Please. Um, my name is Sinkana Kalambure Banda from Malawi. I am a uh, treasurer of Malawi of the Blind. Uh, Malawi of the Blind is determined to make the government of Malawi to ratify the, uh, uh, this uh, marriage treaty. Uh, for instance, we have discussed with the Minister of uh, uh, Gender, uh, Women's uh, Disability and Social Welfare. We have also discussed with the, the uh, Community Society. And um, as, as I'm talking now, the issue is uh, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So, but what I wanted to find out is uh, about the guide you have talked, talked about. You say you are developing a guide. We wanted to have access to that uh, guide. I don't know how, how we can access that one. Or... You have said that you put it on the website. I don't know how, when do we start accessing it on the on your website again. Uh, also, for us to uh, form a, a, this alliance, which Chris has just just talked, we needed with uh, uh, BW, B, sorry, what brand union is? Uh, just say uh, if you can give us technical and uh, I mean technical support for us to. Uh, make it a uh, risk to go it uh, as fast as possible so that we, we convince our government to ratify this uh, treaty. So uh, I would urge um, WBU uh, to give us that support if, if that is possible. Thank you very much. Thank you. The guide will be available um, quite soon. I can't give you an exact date, but I would imagine within the next two months. When it's available on our website, we will let people know through different mechanisms, um, through our e-bulletin and other means, so that people can access access it. Um, any other comments you want to make, Chris? On that? Just 
keep in touch with your government. Don't think your job has been done because they say they're going to ratify. Follow it up. Ask to see sight of the document, the ratification document, um, because you want to make sure that their interpretation is maximising your benefit. Um, it may be that the, um, the, the, the publishers and authors in Malawi you know, are putting in this question of remuneration. You need to f- be right to the door when it's, it's finally done. You've got to be alongside and asking to be consulted uh, as, a, as a legitimate uh, 50% stakeholder alongside the, 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 the other 50% of the publishers and authors. Thank you. Any more comments or questions from the room? I have a closing comment when you're ready. Okay, yeah, I'll just wait to see if there's any. Is there any more comments or questions? Wait, just wait a second and see if there's more. Doesn't look like we have. No, okay. So what I'll do is I'll invite each of our three panellists to just make a closing remark very briefly Mm -hmm. before we end the session. Jim, would you like to go first? Yes, I I think that you heard my vision for bringing library services through the Marrakesh Treaty to the local level and building capacity. What I can tell you is that this is a moment when international funders are actively interested in funding work. We've had four or five different grants funding just in India. So if you think that your country is going to ratify Marrakesh or has and you want some resources to build up a local collection and get some assistive technology help, track me down, uh, Jim Fruchterman at Banatech, because we would love to help you out. The moment is now, because the treaty is coming to effect. It has the attention of the world. We can actually actively work to make this happen in your country and bring real resources to you and your group to see that the book famine ends in your country. Thank you, Jim. And just before I go to Pablo for his closing comment, there's, there is one more person in the room who would like to speak. This will be the last person. Then you, yeah. Pablo. Th- th- thank you, Maria. And then sorry for... Um, I was a bit s- slow. Uh, my <laughs> name is Mokhan Moussaid, uh, director of the European Blind Union. And uh, Marianne, you touched upon the situation in Europe. Uh, so I just wanted to, uh, to clarify that, uh, indeed, we are faced with a problem of procedure, uh, which is absolutely ridiculous, because, uh, in fact, uh, the question is whether the European Union should have exclusive competence uh, for ratifying, or this should be a shared competence, competence shared with, you know, the individual member states. Uh, This has been used to procrastinate by uh, the member states who are fiercely against the ratification. Um, it is hoped that this issue will be now uh, solved by the European Court of Justice. We're waiting their opinion, uh, which should be um, should go out uh, in, in a matter of weeks now. Uh, but as um, as was mentioned by a number of uh, uh, European organisations over the last few days, uh, preparations at the national level are being made so that everything is ready when ratification is eventually and hopefully done at the EU level. Thank you. Thanks, Moncrane, and we look forward to 28 ratifications quickly. (laughs) Thank you. Pablo, would you like to make some a final remark brief? Thank you. 
Yes, I just wanted to uh, repeat what uh, we've been saying so far, and we have been advancing a lot. And the treaty is going to be activated in the September 30th. But it, right now is our fundamental moment because we have to continue working and with all the different blind organizations together so they have more than 20 countries that could be part of this treaty. And we have to be able to be strong, to be present, to be one voice, and that we are representing all of us so that the implementation, the practical implementation, really can bring solutions for us. In Marrakesh, during the negotiation, we learned that the blind, we had power, we had strength because if what was negotiated was something that was not going to be helpful for us, then the negotiation was not good. But now the same thing is happening. So we'll, let's just be conscious of the power that we have, and let's just be present. And yes, if there are other interests that maybe they have other resources than we do, if they try to be able to close the doors that this treaty is opening for us, then let's be strong, let's be present, and do not let those doors to be closed so that we can be able to reach this change that we're expecting in our reality. Thank you very much. A good reminder. And it would be nice to have more than 20 ratification on September 30th. Chris, final remark. I offer this uh, as uh, an amusing way, perhaps, to draw attention to uh, you know, blockages where, where there's no, no progress. I remember in uh, Geneva visiting the Nigerian ambassador and I presented him with my Braille visiting card Braille side up and that was all he could see and Judy was with me and he looked very uh, astonished because he couldn't read it so I turned it over with the ink print side then became available and said, Your Excellency, I realize that you're Braille disabled, so I have made this accessible for you. <laughs> now, we have, we have opportunities on the horizon. We have White Cane Day, 15th of October. We have the 30th of September. You will have National Independence Days. Send all your MPs, all your senators a letter in Braille. <laughs> Inside it, in a small closed envelope, you could write on the envelope, because we uh, realise that you, you, your Braille, uh, you, know, you, 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 uh, you can't access Braille, uh, we've made an accessible version for you. It <laughs> makes a point. Thank you, Chris. Some very good strategies for us all to think about and use, because they work. Um, I'd like to thank our three panellists. Thank you very much for your time, for sharing your expertise and insights, and thanks to everyone for taking part in this session. With that, I'll close the session for the lunch break. Thank you. Good afternoon. This is uh, Arndt Holte again, and I'm going to uh, share this uh, very important um, uh, plenary session about uh, technology. And we are going to... Uh, have uh, one keynote from uh, from uh, Kevin Kerry from uh, RNIB, president of RNIB, and then we have uh, four panelists, and we are coming back to them afterwards. Um, first, one announcement: it is about uh, resolutions 
but not uh, the World Blind Union resolutions because we have done them. Uh, now it's about the resolutions for the ICVI. Uh, you, if you have any draft resolutions, they can uh, be delivered in the registration desk just outside this uh, meeting hall. That must be done before uh, 6 o'clock tomorrow, uh, 6 o'clock p.m. Uh, tomorrow. So you have some, you have a night to draft, but then it must be done. Okay, let us go to the topic. It's about technology. And uh, as I also said in my um, report to the General Assembly uh, some days ago, it's, <laughs> it is, um, technology is important. And uh, today we are going to listen to Kevin. Uh, I'm always... Uh, uh, interested in listening to Kevin because he always has some new thoughts and ideas and uh, I'm, uh, I'm uh, very uh, happy to introduce Kevin to you. He is uh, the president of RNIB. He has been around uh, as, almost as long as I have been, so we have, we have known each other for a long time. And uh, we have had many uh, good discussions and uh, I think also Kevin has uh, made a great uh, impact on uh, the situation of technology we have today. And uh, through his uh, involvement, engagement, he is always a person who is going in front of us. So Kevin, please, the floor is yours. Thank you. By sheer coincidence, I began writing this speech on a river cruiser moored some 200 meters from the Hotel Maritime in Würzburg, Germany, where I gave the keynote address at the 1987 <coughs> ICVI conference. My message then was that we were compounding the disadvantage of simply being a blind child by imposing a burden of redundant learning. I cited two examples. First, the sequential use of the Taylor frame, abacus and stylus and slate for arithmetic. And secondly, the sequential instruction in writing contracted braille followed by the ordinary print keyboard. 29 years later, as I make my last major speech at such a conference, blind children all over the world are still subjected to the Taylor frame, the abacus and the stylus and slate, instead of the simple effective cube rhythm. And the norm still is for blind children to learn to write braille and only subsequently to learn to key print, even though any digital file can be rendered for reading in either Braille or print. In many places where money is no problem, you would think that the digital age had not arrived. I recently went to the best, well, the newest and most expensive, rehabilitation center in the world, where newly blinded adults were learning Braille. Not with refreshable Braille displays, 
not with synthetic speech, not with enlarged print on screens, but with a few sheets of manila paper. If you look at the way that most children with severe sight loss are being educated, even in the richest countries, you will hardly see a sports screen, a 3D printer, a simulator, a top-of-the-range games console, or a haptics package. It's as if the deprivation of being blind in itself has to be matched by a degree of austerity. Even taking for granted the conservatism of teachers, our sector's performance in the past 30 years has been at least very sad. At the same time, the explosion of digital technology has only had a marginal effect on the life chances of blind and partially sighted adults. Of course, we see many of our elite people like me enjoying our digital technology, and I've seen hundreds of blind people in developing countries using mobile phones and MP3 players. But I often think that these are the consolations of the condemned rather than the tools of the entrepreneur. The impact of digital technology on blind people might best be characterized in these terms. We have benefited absolutely, but have been disadvantaged proportionately. In other words, the ability to access any digital text in an alternative format is a massive absolute advantage. But in spite of this, the gap between us and our sighted peers has become ever wider. This is for five reasons. First, the potential for accessing digital material in alternative formats has not been realized through braille and audio publishing liberalization and cheaper access costs. Libraries for the blind and publishing houses have been extraordinarily conservative. And it was Apple, not the visual impairment sector, that broke open the synthetic speech market. And it was only this year that a global consortium of visual impairment organizations broke open the refreshable Braille cartel by developing the Orbit 20, which was launched at CSUN. And it's only now that I am able to announce that the World Blind Union Technology Committee has worked in collaboration with RNIB, Google, and Dolphin to launch Easy Converter Lite it will be launched in October, to provide a set of software tools for the production of synthetic speech with architecture, Braille, and modified print, and that the toolkit will be free of charge to all but the richest countries. But my point is that it's taken a very long time given that the first refreshable Braille display was produced in Canada around 1972. You can view the new toolkit and the Orbit 20, and indeed the first viewing of the new whole-page Braille display uh, in Salon 8 in concurrent session 12 at 4.30 this afternoon. And so the sector, I'm afraid, 
has to take some of the blame for the gap widening. Secondly, the elephant in the room in the digital age is the explosion in the use of pictures. In the past quarter of a century, there's been a rapid reversal in the terms of trade between text and pictures. With the cost of clear prose rising and the cost of image capture and processing falling, this makes perfect sense in the global context and in the multilingual national context. Thirdly, we've not used enough resource to speed up the search function. In an era of plenty, the problem isn't obtaining something, it's finding it. Both Braille and modified print users cannot scan a whole screenful of information as rapidly as their peers, so they need much better search narrowing facilities to find what they want. Fourthly, and connected with the previous point, we've been far too narrowly focused on access to top-down data from the web in WCAG 1 and 2 at the expense of both search and more critically, at the expense of web authoring tools. While the rest of the world establishes an ever more balanced regime of data production and consumption, we're still far too heavily focused on consumption. And finally, we've lobbied global technology companies in the way we've become accustomed to lobbying the United Nations, when the two phenomena are totally different. We will only succeed when we develop and sell solutions to corporates rather than begging for concessions, which abridge shareholder value. Now, having got all the really bad news out of the way relatively quickly, I want to spend the rest of my time setting out a digital technology agenda for the next four years, <coughs> some of which reflect what I've already said, but some of which involves topics which have not previously been discussed at such meetings as this. First, let me tie up the issues I've already mentioned. The failure of the sector to take advantage of digital technology is largely the result of conservatism, not the technology itself. Even where we have developed new devices, they've tended to look much more like medical equipment than consumer products. And our attitude to major corporates has been to lobby them instead of engaging them in commercial discussions to pay us to solve their compliance and marketing problems. The problem of image and object description can be solved, I think, through a global resource, which is far more important than simply trying to establish a global resource for text files. There are cultural differences in the way that such artifacts are described, but there's still a massive core of commonality. This should be a joint project between WBU and ICVI because of the need for educators to be taught to describe as part of their training, which naturally connects with my point on blind children and adults publishing data in digital spaces rather than simply consuming other people's data. But the biggest, simplest improvement we can make if we work together is on search time. Some years ago, I got into very hot water for saying that screen reader users could not review as quickly as their sighted peers. I was accused of saying that blind people weren't as good as their peers, but I was making a much narrower statement. 
In searching for a particular element, a sighted person can view a whole screenload of information and determine rapidly whether the thing she wants is there. Screen reading with large print, synthetic speech or braille display is much more laborious. But we could harness the power of machine intelligence to cut down search times with systems defaulting to learned user preferences or offering options to narrow the scope of searches. And we could and should look at the way in which speech input can be used much more forensically. Yes, we've all benefited from the revolution started by Apple, but we haven't been inventive enough in magnifying its power for our benefit. But of the four points I made earlier, I think the most vital is the establishment of a proper balance between the production and consumption of material. And within the consumption framework, there's been far too much emphasis on web accessibility. The most important consumption issue for most of our people is television, not web access. Sooner or later, the internet and broadcasting will merge in a spectrum-free and therefore regulator-free domain. But for the time being, our real objective in access to peer normative data should be television. But first email and then social media have ensured that increasingly we're a producer as well as a consumer society. Children and adults with sight loss should not be shut out of that productive environment. All over the world, jobs will be lost to automation. And increasingly, jobs will be based around two major skill sets. First, the ability to create commercial variants from basic formula. And secondly, the ability to make decisions which cannot be automated and for which explanations will be required. Most cultures base their education around transformative creativity, but most of us produce and consume variants. Cooking, soap opera, fashion, comedy, landscaping, sport, pop music, and many other phenomena are based around variation. And as the range of human decision-making narrows, it will require demonstrated reasoning. But there's something else to finish this section with. Social media give enormous pleasure to billions of people. And we should never forget that there's more to life than formal education and work, even for blind people. And I want to turn to three emerging challenges which we must get to grips with in the next five years. Financial transactions, telecare, and medical records. I must say it's a mystery to me why we're so satisfied with ourselves because we're gaining access to ATMs. Frankly, I'm appalled that it has taken us 40 years to get where we are. We simply can't afford the same delay over telephone financial transactions and contactless free payments. In both cases, the problem is identifying the point where we need to exert pressure. And this will be different in different countries. Furthermore, in some countries, the vast majority of financial transactions may be under the jurisdiction of a telecommunications rather than a banking regulator. At this point, it's very difficult to know. But whatever the variations, the trend is now well established. 
telephone and contactless payments are much cheaper than the use of checks and credit and debit cards. Globally, the trend of greater longevity and consequently greater and more frequent health and medical challenges with aging is well established. The response almost everywhere has been defensive action by medical professionals to secure ever more resources for tertiary hospitals. But if this trend continues, as it most likely will, then the per capita resources devoted to providing free health and medical care will fall. The only way out of this situation is to spend much more money on the, provision of dis- on the prevention of disease and on telecare, where people are looked after in their own homes through the use of digital communication systems. This may seem impossibly utopian, but the cost of a stay in hospital everywhere in the world is disproportionate. The clue here, as with so many other issues, is that we have to stop doing things that are wasteful rather than seeing new developments as only viable if they start at the back of the queue. My final major point is of particular significance to elderly and disabled people, and that is the emerging issue of who owns our medical records. In the United States, this is generally dealt with as an access issue. Who has the ability to access my record? In Europe, the issue is more often presented as a privacy issue. Who is permitted to breach my right of privacy to see my medical records? But I think that we are faced here with a much more fundamental issue, and this is who owns my medical record or any other personal data? Surely the answer must be that in order both to control access and preserve privacy, we should own our own data. And the reason why this is important for us is that the increasing proportion of health and medical care in private hands will involve the purchase of insurance, which in turn will put power into the hands of insurance companies to vary policies according to risk. And you can bet your life that people with severe sight loss will be classified as a much greater risk than their sighted peers. We only have to think about the number of times people ask whether we're going to fall downstairs to know this is true. For all kinds of reasons, including the failure of centralized systems to guarantee data security, the long-term solution to our problem is that parties can only access our data, which we maintain ourselves or with a trusted agency, when we give permission. But it's not difficult to see why governments and major corporates will fight this kind of data decentralization. In conclusion, I can summarize my thoughts as follows. The near obsession with web accessibility demonstrates a lack of reactive capacity. We too easily get stuck in ruts that we need to get out of. There is, for example, a pretty narrow window where state regulators will continue to supervise broadcasting. But when spectrum is replaced by the internet, regulation will disappear and we will have missed our chance. And while we continue to campaign for access to ATMs, 
they'll be replaced by contactless payments and telephone transactions. It seems to me that we need to do three things. First, we need to hire people who understand emergent technologies, and we need to take notice of what they say. Most of what we think may happen tomorrow actually happened yesterday. Secondly, we need to understand that the usual pattern for emergent technology has been an overestimate of its short-term impact, but an underestimate of its long-term impact. And thirdly, we need to recognize that the future, as far as we can see it, is in the consumer electronics of the telephone, not the computer electronics of the PC. If the past is any indication of the future, we are not in a good place. But if we don't get a move on, by the time we meet in four years, the gap between us and the rest of the world in spite of the digital benefits we enjoy, will be even wider then than it is now. It's almost certain that when I sit down, somebody will say that I've made a thought-provoking speech. What matters is that it's action-provoking. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. And I can guarantee wherever you are going, there will always be action after you have been there. Um, I took uh, Kevin to our rehabilitation center up in, uh, in, um, uh, to, in uh, Norway. And uh, I was very proud of our center and showed him around and uh, presented the people working with the Braille uh, education and so on. And he said, why are you doing it in that old-fashioned way? So, two weeks ago, Kevin, we, we, we finished our project, so now we are using technology methods in uh, teaching brain in uh, the whole system of rehabilitation in Norway. So, thank you very much. <laughs> the next speaker, she's coming from New Zealand, Martin. She is also the new treasurer of the World Bank Union, and she will be an important person in our work in the next coming four years. She is going to talk about wayfinding, and uh, Martin, please, the floor is yours. Good afternoon, everybody. How can one follow um, Kevin Carey's um, presentation? But, you know, uh, four years ago, I was invited to chair the working group on access to the environment and transport. And most of us who use guide dogs and canes know that you go out there and explore the environment. So you do wayfinding. And some of our priorities in the last four years had to do with silent vehicles and shared spaces. And we very soon realized that you can't separate out the physical environment from technology. Technology is everywhere. Your phone wakes you up, and your phone probably tells you, um, you know, what to eat. <laughs> 
what is healthy. So your phone will probably tell you, iPhone will probably tell you where to go and when to stop. So we soon realized that it is not, unless you're really familiar to where you're going, you would know, want to know what's around you and you will want to change your mind. So we realized that there is not a straightforward separation between access to the environment and technology. And of course, coming to this meeting, I don't know about you, but this is the first meeting ever. Never mind, um, you know, there's a gap between, you know, if you go to a building, how many buildings do we find? I'm not talking about hotels. But if you go to businesses, how many buildings do we still find that you walk in the front door and you go straight ahead to reception and someone will ask you what you want to do or who you want to see and they will call someone and that person will come and fetch you. Many of us now walk into a building and it's quiet. Your cane and your dog will find nothing. They'll find Maybe a lift, eleva elevator. I shouldn't say lift. I, I go, we talk about lift here, and people say, what is a lift? What do you want to lift? But, of course, lift is elevator. <laughs> so I should say elevator while in Rome. Um, you go walk into a business building, especially where there are more than one business, and there is nothing. You can almost walk around the perimeter and find a glass door and an elevator and a locked door, mostly locked doors with a security um, padlock that you have to swipe a car. So suddenly we want the building to communicate to us. There is not a real person. There is not someone that's going to welcome you and ask you if you want to go to the seventh floor to a specific lawyer's firm. So we, you know, we realize that you can be a very good navigator in your Mobility. You can be an expert cane or guide dog user, and when there's nothing to tell you where you are and where you're going, you're still stuffed. So we want the building to tell us, or something else to tell us, what is around us. And um, so many times now, of course, at an airport, you go on the travelators, and suddenly you walk, and something tells you to mind the gap or um, you're stepping onto a travelator, um, you're getting to the end of the travelator, it's very uh, robotic, and so we slowly on got used to technology telling us what to do and where to go. And in many other places, which is really frustrating, you get into a building and you find a visual display, display console, and you know you have to do go to level four, so you get someone to press level four for you, and then it's not just, I find a lift and I go to level four, elevator, go to level four. But you have to find a specific elevator because the first bank goes to one and two, and the second bank goes to three and four, and this, and, you know, and it's very much like in this hotel, it's amazing how we can all feel very competent until your wayfinding skills are being tested. So technology is really playing a big part. But it can be overwhelming. Um, how does it feel to have an app telling you all the time what's on your left, what's on your right, what's ahead? So we want two different signals. Yes, sometimes we want to know what is on our left and what is right and what is coming up and what is two steps in front of us and what is two kilometers in front of us. 
But sometimes, if you're like me, I just want to go and buy. I want to visit a patient in a hospital. I want to go to a fragrance shop in an airport. Or I just want to find somewhere to have a drink. So you want to ask something back to technology. I don't want to hear about seven stores on my left and 14 stores on my right and open car park because everything we hear or see actually takes our you know, concentration away and makes us concentrate. So, again, how do we find, how, do, how can we customize technology? In April 2016 this year, we had um, in New Zealand, we hosted a forum on access to the environment and transport. And we focused a lot on the, on the physical environment because we know that if something is not de- designed correctly um, from scratch, it, it is wrong. You know, you can't change a ramp, a step into a ramp overnight. And so we made a, a recommendation that we sent to the WBU head office and hopefully in November either the technology committee, someone on access, whether it's to do with technology or physical environment, will pick up on this. And this is where the rubber hits rose. This is a combination. So we're calling on the standardization and interoperability of mobile indoor and outdoor navigation apps. So we want, we want all the apps. We want people to tell us where we're going. We want beacons, but we also want to sometimes short-circuit the process and say, I'm tired. I had a 12-hour flight from Auckland to L.A. I just want to find the closest loo. So where is it? <laughs> so, yes, so, so we want to hear a lot of information, and we also want to, to interact and ask for a lot of information. At, at our conference in April, we heard from Pratha global enterprises from um, Emirates, United Emirates Arabic States, Loudstep, some of you have that in your, in your countries. We heard from Blind Square, I think many of you with mobile smartphones will have that. And it's really great because we have, so it is out there, the, the, the solutions are out there. But we also know that people, we can have 70 apps a day to use, and sometimes we just want to, to cut to the chase. So, so we want to promote those apps linking with the environment. And we also know that for some people, those apps do cost money. So, um, so we really want to have um, <clears throat> an open resource. And that is what the Wayfinder community are offering us at the moment. And I think that is such a great uh, initiative. So the Wayfinder community was started by the Royal Society for Blind Children. And quite rightly, they went to blind youth, blind children, and say to them, what, what do you want in the future? You know, they didn't go to um, you know, parents and retired people. They went, they went to blind people, blind children, blind youth now, and said... How can, what can make a difference for blind people? And they basically said, we want to know how to get around and we don't want to struggle. So the Wayfinder community was established and they are really, they've launched, they've launched on the 12th of May this year, an open standard for audio-based wayfinding. 
and they want friends to sign up. Now, if you look at, at the WBU website, my presentation will be there, and there will be ways to sign up to look at Blind Square, to look at um, Loud Steps, Prabha Enterprises, to look at the Wayfinder community so that we can sign up and have something that is open source, that is free, that we contribute to. Because this is, this is version 1.0. So all of us have, have input, you know. You don't have to be a geek. I'm certainly not a geek. I'm quite hopeless. In this hotel, I've spent more time being lost than, than um, finding the way, you know. So that, I think that's fine as long as we just know where to go and who to ask. So, hey. So we, so we, so we really, you know, so technology is part of our life, whether we want it or not. But we also know that costs can be an issue, and of course, too many options is as bad as a menu, and you're hungry, you just want to eat, and it's like, oh, you have a choice of seventy dishes. Um, what do you want? Chicken? No. Can you read me the whole menu? And fifteen minutes later, so we're looking at what what can be accessed really. Now, at this point, I just want to break and say I've never discovered. You know, I've went from cane and dog using to technology. But this is the first conference where I found human signposts. I call them blindy beacons. I hope they don't mind. So we go. Um, General Assembly, this way. Elevator, this way. And sometimes I want to say... Where can I just sit on a seat and stuff? But, but it's really, really cool. I, I just think that is such a great transition of how the humans solve the problem of wayfinding. It is really great. I'm going to go back to New Zealand next week. Do you think I can sit in my home and say, I, I need a drink now this way? <laughs> I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I think my husband will say to me, here is a door this way. <laughs> Where's my guide dog this way? Never mind walking around the house. Anyway, really in conclusion, in conclusion, because there's people after me with much more good things to say, we're now in the area where our dog and our cane and our common sense don't tell us what is around, but things can, technology can, and how can we sign up? How can we get open information to either say, A, what is around, and hear all the information, or B, I don't want to know what's around. It's overwhelming. I just want to find the following place. So um, let's stay in touch, and I know that in four years' time we'll have a great updates. So uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Martin. New Zealand that way. <laughs> okay, we are moving on, and the next speaker is um, Guy Wander. Um, he has been working with uh, programming for 30 years, and he's a senior person in in the field. He has also been working with health. He had told me. Uh, and today we are going to hear about digital information accessibility. Gary, please.
I am one of those voices who has been yelling, uh, session this way. <laughs> but some of you may uh, recognize another voice, which is the one that I used that sound like a screaming woman when I was riding the bull last evening. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. President and members of the Joint Assembly for allowing me to address you this afternoon. In my lifetime, I've known the deprivation one feels when information is presented on white paper that is blank to the touch. The joy of knowing there is a way for me to read using my fingers. The discouragement in learning that the further along I got in school, the less likely it would be that my teachers could read my Braille. The exhilaration when realizing that more and more of the world's information was being born digitally or could easily be converted to this format and the absolute exasperation when learning that this digital information could be created in such a way that it would be every bit as inaccessible as the white paper that so frustratingly kept its secrets. Digitization makes it easier not only to read but to write. Now a first draft written on a computer is revised and refined. Material is inserted, deleted, or moved a process far easier than when, in my school days, writing a second draft or a final paper meant completely retyping it and hoping not to introduce new mistakes. Digitization would mean that less Braille had to be transcribed by hand. Others were using digital means to create and distribute their work. Getting and reading this digitally born material should bring about uncharted opportunities for information. Add to this the increasing affordability and accuracy of technology that could take print from the page and make it digital. And for a time, I thought that one of the major problems of blindness had been solved. Soon, our organizations could turn their full attention to other things, the written word having been made universally available to all. Well, the bright future that would change our organizational priorities hasn't quite come to pass, has it? Computers have become more powerful, but the text-based systems that initially were used to operate these marvels have given way to easier-to-use visual techniques. It is easier for a sighted person to find and point at a picture than it is for her to remember the name of a command. Navigating a screen where choices are listed is easier than remembering all of the parameters to make the program do what one wants it to do. Pictures are a part of the real world for the sighted, so it should be no surprise that pictures have come to be a vital part of the virtual world one sees while on his computer's desktop. Now, the problem isn't pictures on computer screens or pointing and clicking to make things happen. These are good things that make the computer a friendlier device for the vast majority of the population. The problem is that pictures or icons too often replace words, and the mouse too often replaces keyboard alternatives. 
Blind people are excluded when only visual alternatives are considered in the design of technology. In some of this technology, the keyboard is useless in making a program work. And some programs are so visual that current screen reading technology can't tell that buttons, checkboxes, combo boxes, and other controls even appear on the screen. Like the physical world, equality in the digital world requires that blind people express our needs, participate in figuring out how to meet them, and become sufficiently active and politically sophisticated enough to have them addressed. In the National Federation of the Blind, this has meant being active on four fronts, evaluating existing technology and participating in research and development to make it better, supporting and leaning on the assistive technology companies, prodding, pressuring, and eventually working with mainstream technology developers to include accessibility in their products, and asking government to help with regulations to clarify that the law of the land demands access to the digital world in the same way it does the physical one. Each of these tasks is incredibly difficult, but we are making progress. Providing meaningful comments about how to get the access we need requires people who understand how computers and screen readers work. Assistive technology developers are reluctant to share how they get the information they use or how they plan to get it in the future. Too often they cling to techniques that have worked in the past but which are now being made obsolete by the requirements of companies for greater security and stability in their systems. Mainstream companies too often see us as a minor and even an insignificant part of their customer base. They tend to see accessibility as a nice thing to do, but not if it gets in the way of a new or an improved product that contains a feature they believe will make them outshine their competition. Eventually, we turn to government, the entity that should represent us, not just because we are full-fledged citizens, but because not having access leads to idleness, unemployment, and a greater burden on taxpayers. But government is reluctant to act. It fears that looking out for the blind may stifle innovation, fears being regarded as less friendly to business, and shrinks at the charge that it wishes to create new regulations, the very word being linked in much of the public's mind with an overly intrusive regime. Four challenges, four big challenges, but we accept and embrace them because to do otherwise would be to accept defeat, to abandon our journey toward first-class citizenship, and to forsake our dream of participating in society on an equal basis with the cited. So how are we doing? You can see for yourselves that we have in this gathering from around the world knowledgeable people who understand the complexity of the computers we need to access. And they are offering input and help to the developers of assistive technology and working actively with mainstream providers so that many of the devices coming to market today 
that involve reading and writing are accessible out of the box. Is the change as fast as we would like it to be? No. Do companies sometimes release things that are inaccessible? Yes, they do. But our progress is measurable. Our opportunities are increasing. And more and more, we are coming to be seen as worthwhile partners who, in meeting our needs, help mainstream businesses build products that more fully meet the needs of the diverse populations they wish to serve. Thus far, I've been talking about technology used in reading and writing, but other digital technology is found all around us, and some of it, if not made accessible, will truly be handicapping. Let's start in the home. Today's equipment for cooking and cleaning is becoming ever more digital. One seldom finds a stove or oven with rotatable knobs that can easily be labeled. Instead, we find buttons that must be seen to be pressed, menus that must be seen to be navigated, and no means of non-visual output that can be used to determine the temperature of our oven or the remaining time on its timer. The washing machine poses the same problem. How do we specify the size of the load? Whether we want hot, warm, or cold water? Whether the load is delicate or requires intense washing? The options are there, but all require vision. Many do not have feelable buttons that can be memorized and pressed with confidence that one won't ruin the clothes in the machine. Unlike communication, there are no laws in our country pushing for industry to build accessibility into their appliances. Without laws, we are hard-pressed to exert the same pressure that has worked with some success in the information industry. There is, of course, a solid moral argument to be made, but how does one convince a company that morality deserves a place on a statement in which the bottom line is a number representing a percentage of profit and loss. Unless we make headway on accessible home appliances, we face the very real prospect that a fully capable auto mechanic, teacher, lawyer, or physicist may not be able to function independently when wishing to live alone and maintain a home. We don't intend to let this happen. But the prospect is more than a doomsday thesis around which some novel is based. One additional challenge, uh, challenge faces us as we seek to avoid drowning in the digital divide. Tremendous advances are being made in medical equipment, conditions which would once have required a prolonged hospital stay can now be treated at home given equipment for monitoring and treatment. The equipment communicates using a digital display, but makes no provision for non-visual access. Sometimes input is through a touch screen, sometimes through buttons one cannot easily feel, and sometimes using buttons which are activated not by a press, but by a simple touch. Even when buttons are detectable, too often there is no confirmation that one has been pushed or that a longer than intended push has resulted in a machine concluding 
that one or more presses were intended. All of this screams of danger and discrimination. It threatens our ability to take care of ourselves, our children, our parents, and others who could benefit from our competent and compassionate care. What I intend to impart today is not a bleak picture of our future, but the challenges we must meet to have the future we want. As long as we can articulate our needs, marshal the resources to meet them, and bend the laws of our nations so that they acknowledge our right to live independently, these things we now see as problems will appear in the history books as accomplishments, not stumbling blocks. They will not be what stopped us, but what pushed us, both to solutions that solve today's problems and that provide foundational answers for the challenges of tomorrow. We must win because there is just too much at stake to lose. Working together, we will have access that is affordable and efficient, and we will take our place as productive members of our societies. This is the promise we make to ourselves, and we always keep our promises, not only for the blind of today, but for the blind of tomorrow. Let us do this together. Thank you so much for this uh, inspiring, uh, inspiring uh, presentation, Carrie. Um, I must. This morning, I heard about this bull, which you were talking about, um, and uh, the incoming president told me that he holds the record on the bull, not being throwing out uh, off. But the secret was that he never turned it on. <laughs> Okay, um, now I'm going to challenge uh, the technology. We have one more speaker, is uh, Maria Valera, and she is coming on, uh, on video, so I, I'm very uh, anxious uh, if this will function, but we will see. So Maria, if you are with us. Good afternoon, everyone. And thank you for being interested in the situation of technology in developing countries. This panel started with a conference that invited everyone to examine the crystal ball and imagine and analyze the possibilities that technology can offer to people with different with visual impairment. When I think about uh, this future from the developing countries' perspective, I ask myself whether this future in the area of technology is the same uh, we enjoy in first world countries. We can ask ourselves two basic questions. Uh, has technology really arrived in developing countries? And second one, do blind people use technology in these countries? Developing countries are plenty and with different social and financial situations, even inside, inside the countries themselves. 
Accessing specific services for blind people is possible in large cities, but in rural areas it's very limited or almost impossible. This affects the degree of, of access um, to technology for these people, and I'm not referring only to ICT access, but also to basic assistive products such a white kind, uh, white cane, stylus, or a talking watch. And what are the reasons? The lack of knowledge in assisting solutions, lack of resources to buy assistive products, lack of suppliers, and lack of suppliers' interest to provide um, low technology basic products. Very high import and transport expenses, very complex customs conditions that multiply the cost of products, and very expensive and not very good after-sales services that prevent correct equipment maintenance. These market conditions prevent many blind people from accessing uh, basic and specific products for their daily life, such a cane or a stylus, and don't don't even think about having a typewriter, a braille display, or a CCTV. These are unreachable products. However, it's often easier for them to access a smartphone, given that a standard technology which is available in anywhere and at a more affordable price. And what can we do so that our crystal ball uh, show us a more friendly future? We need to keep two things in mind if we want to change the current situation that blind people uh, need to be able to access, access uh, to specific assistive products they need wherever they are and at affordable prices. The problem is often not only that people don't have enough money to buy these products, uh, but the absence uh, of suppliers of assistive products in their respect respective countries. Blind people and assistant professionals who attend them, they don't know, for example, that a smartphone or a tablet can act as a scanner or a CCTV either for free or at a very low cost. Under these two premises, we need to, underst we need to uh, understand the import conditions of products in these different countries by geographical and trade areas to address the exchange of products between countries with favorable conditions, provide information between blindness organizations and service providers about the existing solutions, where and how to find them, create uh, spaces or forms, um, to spread low-cost technology and products 
and information about how to take advantage of standard technologies to cover the needs of blind or visually impaired people, promote initiatives that supply uh, basic products at a local level, which are leaders in the use of standard and low-cost technology for blind people, and which take advantage of the opportunities that existing technology offers to the creation or production on demand or at small scale. Coordinate knowledge, advice and production network with, with these initiatives that generate synergies and guarantee its sustainability at the same time ensure the supply of products and assistance in the use of existing technologies. Ensure that the future is in technology and technology will be able to bring solutions to any blind people wherever they are. Thank you uh, for your attention and enjoy this event. Mark Maurer, Mr. President. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, now we will have some time for questions and um, comments. And I will remind you that you are using, uh, for those of you who have um, uh, national uh, signs, you use them. And we will try to, to pick it up from here. Uh, and uh, I guess there might be also uh, people here without uh, national science because we are now a joint uh, assembly. So uh, we will try to organize uh, uh, the questions from, from here anyway. So I, I think I heard someone there. Mark Maurer, Mr. President. Mark? Uh, please, Mark. Thank you. I appreciate the comments of the panel and thank you for all of them. I have a question that goes like this. We have conquered the screen reading technology for a good many things, starting with uh, character-based presentations on the screen and then going to the graphical user interface. We have found a way to get text-to-speech to be operational, even when the text is not uh, oriented properly or in straight lines sometimes when it goes around corners. The current need is to, and, we, and we're doing object recognition, uh, not very well, but the beginnings of it. The current need is to do picture recognition. We've done text-to-speech, we need to do pictures-to-speech, and this is more than just taking a picture and having some rendering of it because Pictures are complicated enough that what you do with the speech is needed. And in my opinion, this is the beginning of machine-based vision, which in certain computer uh, developments is already fairly well established. We need to figure out how to get it from the computer base into the human base. And I wonder what your speculation is about how we will participate in that. It won't work if we don't. It needs to have us uh, in the midst of it to tell people how to do it 
and it's the beginning of machine-based vision that is useful to us. Can you tell me what you think is going to happen there? Someone who wants to comment from, from the panel? Yeah. Uh, Kevin? Is that on? Yeah, it is on. Um, I suspect that almost all the really significant expenditure on this, and it's a fascinating subject, will come out of um, defense departments, which might actually make it quite difficult for us to open a dialogue. But the way the dialogue is constructed uh, is something we can learn from history. The, the first non-military mainframe computer was put together by the Heinz Corporation, and the salespeople were incapable of telling the computer people what they wanted, and the computer people were incapable of understanding what the salespeople wanted, uh, which is why it was a failure. So actually, to try and get a dialogue going between the visual impairment sector and the defense sector, I think is going to be quite challenging, but I agree with you, it's the way to go. There's a gentleman in the front here. Uh, it, it is Paul Lüneborg. Paul Lüneborg, Honorable Life Member, please. Yes, thank you. I, just, I, just, I was very happy to hear Kevin Carey's um, recommendation that we should uh, get in touch with the people uh, dealing with technology, technology development for tomorrow to be able to cope with the development uh, being accessible to us. Uh, you mentioned our, the example with ATMs. There are many of such examples where we have been far too slow to get in touch with developments. I remember myself dealing with access to telephone boxes in the uh, EU legislation. We managed to get a very nice piece of, of uh, legislation uh, adopted when everybody uh, had a mobile phone. Thank you. <laughs> okay. More questions? We have still some time. I'm going to close a little bit before 4 o'clock because I, I think there are some sessions uh, starting pretty soon after 4 o'clock. So, so if there are any more questions, comments? Uh, Gary? Yes. There must be a switch here. Yes. Okay. I, I think that the importance of picture recognition is um, immense. The graphic novel is a good example of what we are starting to see, where if you miss the picture, getting all the text right doesn't mean anything. Some of this, I think, can be done uh, by machine. Facebook is starting at it, and some other places are too. I think the difficulty is going to be in the nuance of the thing. So what is the facial expression of the person who is being represented in the graphic novel? Uh, if I'm talking with somebody and I'm trying to judge through uh, some visual technique whether I'm getting through and I'm not getting audio clues, I've got to know more than just that I'm talking with Mrs. Jernigan. I have to know whether she's buying what I'm saying or whether she's openly skeptical because this will change the way that I make my argument. 
It's going to be an interesting and exciting thing to do. Uh, if Ray Kurzweil's predictions are correct, we will have artificial intelligence that's up to the task. Whether I'll still be alive when that happens also depends on a Ray Kurzweil prediction, and we'll just have to see. Thank you. Thank you. Um, sorry. Uh, my experience with the, with the um, uh, Facebook uh, picture describing is that uh, I didn't often find it very interesting. It's saying just two clouds, two people, and uh, sun. <laughs> so so I, I really think it, it, should, it must be more developed, uh, and I, I, I totally agree with uh, Kevin that... Uh, that can be in a kind of a cooperation uh, with the defense industry because I guess they have already done a lot of that, uh, especially when we are talking about the taking pictures in the darkness and so on. So it should be something we can uh, utilize in, 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 in the future. One more comment from... Yeah, please. Yeah. Yes, uh, I, I represent the developing country. I'm from Nepal. So as we talk about the web accessibility, and we very often encounter problem in going through the capture. Uh, there is the audio capture as well, but uh, in the developing country where the mother tongue is not English, so it is very difficult to identify these uh, captures. So what could be the best way that uh, we can overcome such barriers, the, uh, accessing the waves. I think one of the ways we do that is we demand a different CAPTCHA uh, that relies on general knowledge that all of us would have that the computer might not be able to guess at. Right now, most CAPTCHAs scramble what is presented on the screen to make it almost illegible, but there are other ways to do CAPTCHAs. Um, what has four legs purrs and has sharp claws would be a great CAPTCHA. Okay, um, I think we are going to stop here. Um, Thank you to the panelists and Kevin Carey for giving us this presentation this afternoon. And uh, I'm sure that we are, this is a, not the last time we are having this kind of session in World Run Union. So I'm looking forward to the future. And I know that this will, it's, it's very difficult to predict the future, but I think it's going much faster than we believe. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, we have a few announcements. Um, the first is about the translation system. Uh, the small recorder you are using. Um, uh, Mark Ericobono has told me that if you don't think you need them anymore, please return them to the desk uh, and, uh, as soon as you, as you can. I could say more about that. Uh, Mark would like to say something more about that. Do you want the podium mic? The mic here. I've got the podium. Thank you, Mr. President. Just, uh, it's not time to send you out just yet, but 
if you are planning to leave early, we please ask you to turn in your uh, translation listening device to the desk where you picked it up. Uh, we don't want to have to chase you down later. Uh, we do have your email and information connected to the device. We don't want to have to chase you down, and we certainly don't want to have to chase you down for the charge for running off with the device. Um, so make sure you turn it in. Obviously, if you're going to be here tomorrow, you can plan to continue to use the device tomorrow. This is just to get it into your mind, not to forget to turn it in before you leave. And I would, as a last note, uh, as someone that has used the device throughout the uh, course of the events, I think we should give a round of applause to our translation team. They've been doing a great job. Thank you. We also have a message for the WBU-sponsored delegates for whom the WBU office has arranged the hotel shuttle bus service. This is about your return transportation to the airport. At the Orlando airport, you should have received your return bus ticket from the shuttle bus company. Please refer to the bus pickup time that the office sent you before your departure. If you do not remember the pickup time, you can check that at the WBU office in room 247 by lunch tomorrow. You will need to be ready and waiting for the bus 10 minutes before your pickup time at the hotel main entrance. Keep in mind the extra time that you will need to check out of the hotel. Your rooms have been paid for, but you will need to pay the extra charges that you have made to your room. Okay, then we have finished. Thank you so much. Good afternoon. My name is uh, Mani. I am the CEO of the International Council for Education of People with Visual Impairment. I take this opportunity to welcome the distinguished speakers and also the distinguished audience. This is a big hall of uh, the assembly but a very impressive number. Looking at the size of the hall, we are already 30 members attending this session. That is very impressive. Yes, and uh, more people will be joining us soon. And this session is about uh, technology in developing countries. There are two speakers. The first speaker is... Uh, A.K. Mittal, who is the, the president of the All India Confederation of the Blind. Mittal Sabi is known to all of us. He was the treasurer of WBU and uh, now the secretary general of the WBU elect and uh, is a great friend of mine. Um, Dr. Mittal served as the director of the premier institute, the national institute of the visually handicapped in India. A person with a lot of academic background, a person with a lot of analytic mind. He is going to talk about developing adaptive and assistive technologies for the visually impaired. For us, but not without us. 
we are looking forward to his presentation the next speaker is none other than a well known face martin kaiti from africa he is idp program coordinator of the perkin school for the blind and all of us know martin kaiti and his organization skills we know how he conducted the africa forum in kampala in october and uh, both are accomplished speakers martin is going to talk about technology innovations in developing countries so without taking much time i will uh, give the floor to the speakers they will speak for about uh, 15 minutes each at the end of the session we will invite questions from the audience so with this introduction i request uh, ak mittal saab to make his uh, presentation mittal saab the floor is yours thank you uh, thank you mr chairman the term adaptive or assistive technologies is used in this presentation to refer to solutions or products developed for us on the basis of technology applications since the aim of uh, these applications is to enable us to attain and maintain maximum independence it should naturally follow that we be treated as an integral part of such processes and developments here the phrase for us not without us is not just a slogan or a cliche but a matter of enduring conviction and abiding commitment so in this presentation we would look for answers to questions like why and how in so far as our felt needs and interests are concerned regarding technological solutions a number of international documents underscore the critical importance of technology applications for persons with disabilities uncrpd especially articles 9 and 21 section 4 of the outcome document adopted by the united nations in september 2013 as also at the regional level goal 3 of the ancient strategy adopted by the unscap as a part of uh, asia pacific decade of persons with disabilities 2013 2020 all emphasize the vital significance of uh, technology for us however to be really meaningful these endeavors must be need based and related to actual life situations so let's now talk of lot talk in more specific terms of why we want users perspective the real benefits of adaptive technologies can be meaningful only when the user's situation or standpoint is taken into consideration at every step of the way it is indeed no exaggeration to state that persons with disabilities including the blind and the partially sighted are the most qualified and best equipped to support inform and advocate for themselves and other persons with disabilities 
experience and observation are a clear pointer to the fact that the quality of life of such persons and of the community at large undergoes a significant positive change when persons with disabilities themselves actively articulate their concerns and requirements. Adaptive technology is no exception, and it is crucial that our views and requirements should form the basis for innovative work in this area. Clause O of the preamble of the UNCRPD recognizes that persons with disabilities, which of course would include blind and the partially sighted, persons with disabilities should have the opportunity to be actively involved in decision-making processes about policies and programs, including those directly concerning them. The Convention, the convention makes this even more explicit through Articles 4.3 and 33.3, which call upon states' parties to closely consult with and actively involve persons with disabilities, including children with disabilities, through their respective organizations in all decision-making processes concerning such persons and also monitoring implementation of the Convention. Thus, the perspectives and concerns of user groups like us are recognized in international law now and have to be honored in all sincerity and earnestness with regard to technology applications as well. Further, Section 9 of the UN outcome document, uh, outcome document adopted in September 2013 also underlines, quote, the importance of closely consulting with and actively involving as appropriate persons with disabilities, including through their representative organizations as key actors and stakeholders in the elaboration, implementation, and monitoring of the emerging post-2015 development agenda, quotation closed. Thus, it becomes imperative for all service providers, researchers, and scientists to take on board our perspectives in deciding upon future course of action. It is a matter of considerable regret that many well-intentioned innovative efforts have proved almost futile since these were not implemented with active cooperation of persons for whom these were intended. We remember here the hard work put in by several technology students and professionals in uh, many uh, places developing prototypes which could never see the light of day. One of the primary reasons for this to my mind was non-involvement in many instances of user organizations having a proven national track record of service. Let's now move on to consider some important uh, uh, factors. First of all, affordability. When we think of the situation of the average visually impaired user, the crucial factor of affordability comes up before us as a matter of high priority. According to the 2011 
World Disability Report, about 80% of the world's population of disabled persons reside in our developing countries, mostly in conditions of poverty and deprivation. Therefore, our devices have to be such as to be easily accessible for these economically weaker segments of our population. Some suggestions. The captains of our industry could play a vital role in sponsoring and marketing technology-based solutions for the benefit of our groups. In fact, it might be a good idea to suggest that multinational corporations working in developing countries be motivated to allocate at least 1% of their profits for supporting the development production of otherwise expensive devices for persons with disabilities, including the blind and the partially sighted. In fact, this was one of the ideas floated at World, Braille, World Blind Union's technology meetings way back in 1997. The present concept of utilizing corporate social responsibility initiatives for this purpose may also be pursued. Covering such devices under existing government schemes like the ADIP scheme in India and making them available at uh, concessional costs would be another worthwhile exercise and of course, ultimately, following the concept of universal design in product development could be some other possible solutions. Article 9.2H of UNCRPD enjoins upon states parties to, quote, promote the design, development, production, and distribution of accessible information and communications technologies and systems at an early stage so that these technologies and systems become accessible at minimum cost. Quotation closed. Perhaps it might be as advisable to include large-scale production of the concerned device as an integral component of the project design itself to facilitate availability at reduced cost. Mention must be made here of a development of far-reaching potential under transforming Braille project, a low-cost refreshable Braille display is uh, now being available, which was referred to by Kevin Carey in his presentation earlier. Kevin Carey is leading this uh, particular initiative under, uh, under his uh, technology committee and other associated partners. Another factor which we have to keep in mind is that adaptive technology devices have to be easily usable in view of existing problems like lack, lack or shortage of electricity, etc., especially in rural areas or remote towns. Also, we must ensure that maintenance and repair requirements do not pose insurmountable difficulties because of non-availability of spare parts, possible high cost of repair, and long distances and time involved. Visually impaired persons and their credible national organizations have also to be a lot more closely associated with adaptive technology endeavors. Our emphasis here 
is on association with reputed and well-established user organizations, and not just those which exist in abundance, but whose expertise or competence is dubious. Such partnership and interaction should cover all aspects of actual needs in our sector relating to determining what is really required on a priority basis by blind and partially sighted persons, covering conceptualization, prototype development, field testing, and large-scale production. Our technology professionals and uh, researchers must work with an open mind and give utmost weightage to the inputs of such reputed organizations at every stage. A user's manual must invariably accompany each new device. Let's talk for a moment of international cooperation. Article 32.1D of the UNCRPD and Section 4.0 of the UN Outcome Document lay emphasis on facilitating access to and sharing accessible and assistive uh, technologies and the transfer of technology among nations. However, such technology sharing and transfer needs always to be guided by the specific ethos and situation of each country and not just by what has been found useful elsewhere. Also, our representative organizations in developing countries could take the lead and see how best resources and expertise available with them could be used for the mutual benefit of our visually impaired populations instead of depending always on developed nations. Perhaps our WBU and ICEVI regional unions and chapters could set examples of such South-South cooperation for the technology development and upgradation in our parts of the world. For our concerns to be effectively articulated, it would be necessary that our organizations develop the requisite competence as also mechanism to offer advice to different technology stakeholders and governments. It could be of use for each of our organizations to have a well-informed technology group in their respective structures. Let's talk for a moment on rights and priorities. Smooth and need-based development of technology devices in our sector would be greatly accelerated if it is accepted by all concerned that in the knowledge society of today, access to information and communications is a basic human right for all, including the blind and the partially sighted. In pursuance of the recognition of this basic human right, we have to undertake work relating to this sector based on carefully assessed priorities in view of our limited resources in developing countries. Priorities should be set strictly as per the actual needs and the present level of economic development. May I state again, even at the cost of repetition, that the devices need to be affordable, easy to operate, and the gap between laboratory work or prototype development and mass production be eliminated. May I also point out here that topmost priority be accorded 
to the development and production of devices which as a starting point would facilitate a production of and access to reading material b availability of wide ranging teaching devices c diversification of job opportunities d independent living and household management e entertainment including audio description of films and television content this is this is just an illustrative list to conclude it is obvious that the concerns of primary stakeholders like us must always guide and supervise each step of the development of adaptive technologies for us at the same time from our side we too need to be absolutely clear about what our constituency really needs and how their concerns could best be addressed by technology developers so it is through this close and continuing interaction that we could usher in an era of truly need based adaptive or assistive technologies thank you chairman sir thank you mithil sahab your presentation is uh, brilliant as usual uh, i would like to highlight some of the points mentioned by you in your presentation the first thing you said uh, technology is not just uh, the device it should uh, be linked to the quality of life i think this is a brilliant point the second one you talked about affordability and accessibility i think this is is a very very important aspect when we talk about technology and the third one your idea of using csr corporate social responsibility funds for uh, subsidizing the cost of technological devices i think this is a food for thought i think we have to take this down to all levels because there are more and more corporates coming up with uh, the funds earmarked for persons with disabilities and social work and the fourth one you mentioned about the wbu icbi cooperation in enhancing the technology in education uh, all of us had colin low mentioning about the message of garden brown uh, he has uh, requested both icbi and wbu to come up with the concept note on how technology can be used in implementing the global campaign on education for all children with visual impairment to increase the enrollment and also to improve the quality of education so the initiative is already on and another important uh, uh, observation made by you that uh, we should have working groups on technology the principal officers of icbi met uh, very recently and we have decided that there should be a working group on technology to further the implementation of uh, the global campaign on education for all so you have made uh, these very key points and i think we have to take this as the resolutions you know of this uh, assembly you know for further action so thank you very much for your thought provoking speech and uh, before i invite questions 
I will invite the special, uh, the second speaker of the session, Martin Kaiti, uh, to speak on technology innovations in developing countries. Martin, the floor is yours. You need a cordless mic or you can? Okay. Right. Take this one? Um, thank you very much, Dr. Mani. Uh, it doesn't feel very comforting to speak after AK, uh, but um, I will try to make my speech a little more exciting than I thought I would have done it. Um, from where I come, hello? Huh? So from where I come, um, blind people have very few choices in terms of career. They can either become teachers or they can become preachers. Both professions require you to stand if you're going to keep your audience listening and awake. louder. And um, the preacher in me that never was kind of asks me to stand. So if you will allow, I will make my short presentation standing. Um, uh, Dr. Mani um, introduced me. Thank you very much for the introduction. And I was supposed to speak around technology innovations in um, developing countries. I thought of what I was going to say to this meeting. And um, after trying to find a couple of things to say, I gave up and said, I will look more at a couple of reflections that relate to technology in um, the developing world. Yesterday I was at a panel session on inclusive technology and there were all the gadgets there being displayed, all the programs being you know, developed. And I also went to the exhibition um, hall and saw all the nice things going on there. So I don't think in my presentation I will even dare to uh, speak about what is happening where or who is doing what where because I believe A, I am not well equipped to do that and B, we already know that somebody is doing something somewhere. So I will rather, like I said, look a little uh, back into the situation um, of technology innovation in developing countries. And for this discussion, uh, I will assume technology to refer to the scientific uh, processes of uh, putting things into action, making science work. I will also look at innovation as um, uh, a different way of doing things, producing or providing services for economic or for social purposes, but in a different way. I know these are lazy definitions, but um, uh, I reckon they will suffice for now because I don't intend to provide uh, an academic presentation. Uh, but for more interesting purposes, I'm going to look at um, developing countries and developing development sorry, in a much more detailed way. The World Bank, which was my authority in trying to seek a definition for uh, developing country uh, uses two classifications or two ranking systems. One is the PPP or the purchasing power parity. 
And the other one is the Atlas method, which is what I thought I was going to use. And the Atlas method basically uses, uh, tries to calculate the gross national income per capita, which basically means you're trying to find out how much does a person in any country earn. Um, there are all sorts of intricate um, uh, figures and formulas involved, but I'm not going to go into any of those. What interested me while looking at the 2016 um, rankings, which are based on statistics from 2015, is that um, the low-income countries are those countries that have a GNI per capita of $1,025. Then you have a set of uh, middle-income countries uh, with the lower part of the middle-income countries um, having a GNI per capita of 1025 to about 4030 somewhere around there, and the upper middle class, or sorry, upper middle economy, ranging from 4,000 to 12,000. And then you have the developed world or the high-income economies, which are $12,000 to infinity or wherever it is going to go to. So um, then they give, I mean, looking at that, I calculated the number of countries that fall within each of those categories. And under the zero to 1,000 dollars per year, because that is what per capita is really about. Uh, basically, the definition is about the total final income of a country divided by its population to determine what a person earns per year. 28 countries fall under that category, saying that we have 28 countries in this world whose population earns not more than $1,000 in a year. 44 countries fall between 1000 and 4000 57 countries fall within uh, 4000 and 12000 And a beautiful 80 countries, 80, fall within the upper category, which is the high-income economies, which is very impressive when you look at the figures, uh, you know, and look at the trend. 28 at the lower level, 44, 57, and 80, which means an increasing number of countries are becoming richer and richer. But I was impressed, I mean, intrigued by a small thing. Uh, well, I couldn't get anybody to answer me, but looking at those figures, something that impressed me is that within the 0 to 1,000 category, or the 1,000 to 4,000 category, the gaps are not the same. So you have 0 to 1,000, 28 countries, and between 1,000 and 4,000, three, you know, four times more uh, in terms of the spacing, you get 44 countries. From 4,000 to 12,000, as you com uh, and if you are to compare with uh, 1 to 4,000, those are three times more. And of course, 12,000 and above, that's something else because it can go to infinity. And so I believe a good statistician using any tools of statistics, central tendency or dispersion, can actually paint a different picture in terms of 
what are the actual numbers in each category. And I don't believe that the numbers would be incremental uh, in that kind of positive skew. What I'm trying to drive at is that um, I don't believe that what we have as an indicator of development is really reflective of what happens. If you add those numbers, um, 28, 44, and 57, uh, you get about 100 and how many? About 140 countries or so uh, being referred to as developing countries and the remaining 80, like we said, uh, being developed countries. Of the developing countries, uh, well, the lowest one actually has a GNI per capita of about 250 USD, uh, which is quite low. But maybe I should not uh, bore us with those kind of statistics. What I think I'm trying to say is to interpret those figures in real human terms, you are saying, for instance, for a country that has a GNI of $250 per year, the citizen, the average citizen of that country earns what is 250 divided by 12? That is about $20 a month? Yeah, $20 a month. And the whole cluster, the highest for 1,000, will possibly earn $85 a month. And so I sat back to reflect and said, by me being here, apparently, I seem to have ruined the entire income of my village including my king, barefooted though, I mean, for a whole, possibly one or two years. It may take about four years uh, for someone in a developing country, especially in the low-income ones, to earn what someone in a highly developed country earns within one month. So those are the issues that we have uh, in terms of developing and developing countries. And I'm spending more time talking about those because I believe... There is a point uh, that needs to be addressed in terms of asking ourselves where does technology go to uh, when we are talking about development and uh, developing countries. Now, the technology landscape in, um, around the world, especially within our sector, uh, is diverse, and the best way I reckon I would be able to represent it is by looking back at uh, one of the exhibitions uh, in Africa. We run uh, the Africa Forum, like uh, um, Dr. Mani said, and part of that has an exhibition component, thanks to uh, RNIB, we call it Texture Africa. And you have the exhibition hall arranged in such a way that the premium exhibitors can always enjoy the more prominent spaces near the door, and uh, as you move back financially, you also move back down the, you know, in terms of the room, down the corridor. And so getting into the exhibition hall, um, you begin by seeing nice little toys, smart things, gold, silver, bronze, all polished, nice aluminum, nice toys for nice kids. Then you go down the tables and Plastics begin to appear. Lots of plastic. Plastics in different colors. Lots of them. And as you go towards the end of the room, uh, something else appears. Sisal brooms, 
baskets and mats. All that in the name of technology. Um, so you ask yourself, what exactly is the problem here? Why aren't we all got the same things to show? And uh, over this week and previously before, definitely, people discuss a lot about why, you know, what are the reasons that uh, cause the disparities uh, in terms of technology uh, access. Cost always comes up and a couple of other things. But sitting back and reflecting, I could only find one word that would possibly be a common denominator, either joining them or separating them. And this is food. Food in the sense that some of them will have enough food to eat tonight, tomorrow, and the day after tomorrow, while others are not sure where the next meal will come from. Food in the sense that um, you have communities that still don't know how to deal with hunger. The UNDP, or the UN actually, while developing the SDGs, sorry, yeah, the SDGs, estimates that nine, about 700 and something million people, about 10, 12% of the world's population, are chronically malnourished. What that basically means in lay language is that they are addicted to hunger. More than a tenth of the population of the world is addicted to hunger, which is more than cocaine, heroin, and every other addiction combined. Those are people who can't live without hunger. Out of those, four, one out of every four in Africa are addicted, so they go to bed without food every single day. Yesterday I went without food. Maybe it was bad choice, but uh, yeah. So um, that is a situation that 25% of the people in one continent go home without food. The figures can hardly be surprising, especially when you look also at the fact that uh, out of the 28 countries that we said are, uh, are within the low-income uh, bracket, 25 of them are from Africa. Only three come from Asia. 25 out of 54 countries, half a continent of hunger, presidents, parliaments, and people, all. So the issues to me around technology, innovation, and where we should be focusing on, I believe is addressing the basic principles of tackling the primitive needs of mankind. How do we address the issues of eating and making sure you can guarantee yourself and your family and those that come after you food today, tomorrow, and the day after before you can even start asking about toys and playing with toys? Um, I would say that we have tried in different countries in different ways to address this issue. This conference, for instance, has really been dealing with how technology should be made easily accessible, 
in terms of cost, in terms of inclusiveness, and how they, the manufacturers, ought to consider us. The question is, how do we consider them our own selves? And how do we consider ourselves in terms of empowering ourselves to be able to demand the right technology? Mm. Certain uh, interventions have been tried and they are being tried. One of the most interesting ones is um, taking the nice toys, gold-plated or silver-plated, that are just about to die, give them a new lease of life, maybe one or two years, and then pass them down the corridor. We call it refurbishment, and that is very helpful. It helps. Okay. That's innovation. The second one has been, and I'm involved in some of those, taking the same gadget, removing the gold and silver, putting plastic on top, and selling it at possibly half or a third of the price. We call it what? That's innovation. How can we call it, um, I don't know, budget or something, budget technology or something. I don't know how to call it. And those two approaches are part of the wider framework of technology philanthropy. But the question around that kind of philanthropy is, what is the ethics of it? What is the ethics in giving something that's going to last only one more year into the hands of someone, and tomorrow it dies, they can't repair it, they can't replace it? What's the ethics in removing the gold and the silver and putting plastic and giving it to me? I'm not going to answer those questions. They're about empowering people to choose to say yes or to choose to say no. And what have been the alternatives on the other side of the recipients? Those are the sides of the givers. From the other side, the side of the recipients, something, two things happen really. One is saying, we shall take your gadget, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not. We shall crack it down, we shall reconstruct it in our own image. It's called counterfeiting, and it works. I went to a nation country some time ago, went, and went to a shop wanting to buy an iPhone. And the seller laid on the table six phones, or six iPhones, there were four S that time, and told me, this one is $50, this is $100, this is $200, this is $400, this is uh, five or $600. And I asked them, what is the difference between all these iPhones? They said, well, they are iPhones. So why are they so cheap? They said to me, well, because we make them for our populations. And so I asked them, so you mean they're not genuine? They said, well, if you want to call them that, it's your choice, but they're iPhones. Uh, I went further to ask, do you have the real original thing? They said, ah, we don't keep those and nobody buys them. Can more questions? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, how many minutes to go? Yes, oh. only time passed. Oh, I'm, I'm time passed. Sorry, so I'm going to have to wrap up very fast. So, um, and, and the populations are working. So counterfeiting also gets to be an innovation that people are using. 
and of course, we also have a choice to determine whether we really want it or not. And then finally, I think I reckon one of the good things that people are trying to do is to say, why don't we create our own technology in the simple way we can create it and make it work for us? And possibly that is one of the things that helps communities move forward. I would um, say this, that the best way for us to move forward, as I come to conclude really, is that as developing countries, the basis of technology innovation starts from conquering the primitive needs of mankind, of hunger, of poverty, of poor governance, etc., etc., which are really the issues that make us unable to deal with resources. I don't think the difference in the amount of food that is available on the table for different communities or societies is based on geographical reasons because we know countries that are very dry but that can feed themselves for generations to come. I reckon it's really about how well we manage our resources as people. Reducing waste, being responsible with the environment, writing the right laws to make sure we protect what we have and making our leaders accountable. And the same applies to technology too. And so that is to me one of the things we should be looking at. And I also think that while looking at that, it is our responsibility to empower people to be able to participate in governance and then making sure that the people they elect to go to govern them can guarantee that they will have enough food, they'll be able to meet their basic needs before they can even start asking for toys. And that includes blind people too. As WBU, as ICVI, I believe one of the things we'll be looking at is how to empower blind people to participate in such processes so that they can actually demand as some of the initial things that good governance prevail so that even when we are writing our own national uh, technology innovation systems, and that is something else, that's quite a word, that we are involved and participating in saying this is how the structures of a national innovation system should work. The actors must, inclu must include us as users. The other thing uh, that would also help, I believe, is allowing people to know what is out there. And that is what we try to do at IDP with the Texture Africa exhibition. Let people know what is available. Let them make choices. I also believe that technology philanthropy and the giving of money from technology companies or the giving of refurbished uh, devices or the giving of uh, budget devices is not necessarily the best way to motivate technology innovation in developing countries. Mm -hmm. There is a word, a concept that is out now, it's about 10 years old, they call it technology philanthrocapitalism. Mm -hmm. And technology philanthrocapitalism refers to technology companies, the rich ones, So um, it, it refers to the big technology companies using their CSR not to actually give out, write out checks 
or give out their technology, but helping communities that are developing to develop similar models of business in technology so that they can sustain themselves. So that if Microsoft, for instance, wants to give uh, through philanthropic capitalism, they will say, we aren't giving you disks of Windows 10. We can actually help you develop your own operating systems and selling them and making money from them. And the same would apply to also our, main, our own big companies within the blindness sector. So that other than refurbishing and sending them down to the developing countries, other than replacing gold with plastic and giving us the device, it can work, it can work, I can't guarantee you, but it will work, don't mind. It would be more ideal and more sustainable if we said, let's help each other develop systems that can allow you, in your own country, to develop a similar thing that will work for your people and your country. Okay. Um, I will have to stop there, uh, Mr. Chairman. But my last word is, at the end of the day, technology innovation does not thrive on empty stomachs. And the only innovation that might thrive on empty stomach is theft, which I called counterfeiting and other kind of things. So thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Martin. Chairing a session where Martin is a speaker is always a challenge. Uh, well, I got an impression that I'm listening to the chief economist of the World Bank. You gave such beautiful statistics. I'm so impressed by the statistics you have given. And uh, you have touched the fundamentals of the technology. Your last statement is absolutely relevant. You cannot uh, teach philosophy to the empty stomach. You have to address the basic needs. So, is technology addressing the basic needs of the humankind? I think this is a fundamental question all of us have to address. And you talked about the index of development. How do we define? And your example of uh, the technology philanthropy is something that we have to discuss, something we have to think about. And also, your example of going to the exhibition hall where you have a high cost technology going down, having some plastics which are used for teaching children and then finally you end up with baskets and other things. Well, all come under the technology. Well, in a way, yes. My professor told that it is not technology in education alone, it is education technology also. So both are important in dealing with education of children with visual impairment. I think you have touched some very key points and the finally empowering persons with disabilities. And whatever you do in the name of technology, you ask whether it is empowering persons with disability. That's a fundamental ingredient of this whole philosophy. Well, thank you so much. We had two Excellent, uh, you know, speeches from, do, uh, from uh, two different perspectives. So now I will open the floor for uh, questions and uh, we will take one by one and I will ask uh, the panelists to answer. 
the first one is john dear presenters and able chairperson the one and only mr money um thank you very much ak for your interesting uh, presentation it makes me uh, think uh, reflect of a couple of things i remember uh, everybody who is <clears throat> who who understands the importance of new technology and its importance uh, towards communication which i think is is so important these days and is something that in many parts of the world really needs to be improved new technology can be so important I mean, we see it every day everybody everywhere almost runs around with mobile phones so that's one way of of at least enabling uh, communication amongst people to a larger extent than ever before but um and so so i mean this is one point of it that okay one thing is what do the end users how can they benefit from from uh, from modern technology well the phone as i say is is one example uh, but when it comes to the organizations which are the ones who should advocate and lobby and fight for visually impaired people for instance in africa uh, there the communication issue is is extremely uh, extremely important i mean not uh, yeah, the com yeah so th this is one thing where i think new te new technology uh, is extremely important i've just been um, <coughs> looking at the exhibition hall next door where they offer a lot of technology <coughs> and at least i saw two things which in my mind is really a new breakthrough and which i think could be very important at least both for for any visually impaired person but especially for the children one thing is a solar uh, battery uh, tape tape recorder playback Uh, radio etc etc for a very minimal cost which seems very rugged and sturdy uh, the other thing <clears throat> is the is a technology which worldwide union has been if not sponsoring at least have have been following and that's the new note taker made, made by NFB and and uh, it's called orbit uh, it's a 18 maybe 20 cell note taker which can work with the phone which can you can take notes and the price will be $500 and it's a braille with a new technology braille display so that of course is encouraging i mean if you think what a note taker the one that mr mitter and i have been working on together and separately and which has been one of the key facilities for mr mittel's very excellent work uh, in the wbu and otherwise is maybe 20 maybe 10 15000 dollars this is 500 dollars that's amazing so <laughs> to end this uh, i'm thinking of two things one thing was what you said mr mittel that um, it's important with the instruction the instruction is so important i remember back uh, back in the uh, early 90s the the braille 
the Braille, uh, Braille Type and Speak, I think it was called, was introduced, and we took a lot of them to East Africa and started introducing them. And we saw that they, as soon as we had been there and we left and we had had workshops, they were just lying around. People used them for checking the time and the date, but not much else. And that was saddening. But this is because when it comes to modern technology, one important thing is that people can network and inspire one another and help one another also outside the classroom, also outside the training facility. So that is very, very important. And the other thing, as you say, instructions in handling these pieces of equipment is extremely important. So um, what, is, what is your thought, AK, regarding such new technologies as I have mentioned? Do you think they will, they will mean, they will make a difference or do we have to go totally different ways to introduce real important technology for blind people in developing countries? Thank, Thank you. you, John. Yes, Mithil, sir. Thank you, Mr. Helbron. Uh, just, just a few quick thoughts. New technologies, the, the approach that you're suggesting to me would serve the purpose very well provided the the parameters of affordability and ease of maintenance that I submitted to the audience are heeded. I'll explain why. You know, it is wonderful that uh, the note taker or the uh, braille display that you've spoken of is costing $500 as compared to the type of equipment technology that uh, we are using. Sir, though, even $500 is a lot of money for a developing society. You've been to Asia, you've been to Africa, you will then obviously know that $500 will mean approximately 30,000 rupees. Now, I'm not being pessimistic. What I'm trying to suggest is, and this is probably being thought of by Kevin Carey, if this technology could could be given over to the third party, perhaps the the device could be be assembled in a developing country, following the example, one-time example, now unfortunately it has petered out, of the Perkins Braille Writer, where the spare parts were made available and the assembly was done in India and South Africa. Now, I do not know whether a Braille display or a note-taker technology can be assigned to another country and uh, the actual assembly work could be done there. Perhaps those are, those are things we should be looking at so that these very innovative initiatives could reach maximum number of users in a much larger number of developing countries. That's my thought on uh, the technologies that you have spoken of, uh, Mr. Halbrun. Thank you, Mithil Saab. Uh, Martin, you want to say? Thank you very much, um, uh, Mr. Chairman. I, I totally agree with uh, K around uh, 
what solutions this solution you know, solves. Because even when you bring the cost of the device down, it's not going to be affordable to many people uh, who really uh, need it or to whom it's being developed. Incidentally, I'm involved, I was involved in planning the trip for Kevin Carey to come and uh, test the gadget in Kenya around June or July. That hasn't happened, so we are still waiting for it to happen. We are not saying no to it, but what I'm trying to say is if you moved from technology philanthropy to technology philanthrocapitalism, saying to people, Let's come together. We're going to offer you the resources, the technical assistance, and the technical assistance, and your work or your responsibility shall be to try and using the resources and the circumstances around your country, try to develop this thing uh, for your own market and for your own use. That would be a much better way of looking at it. Thank you. Okay. Uh, yes, uh, James and uh, our friend here. Uh, yeah. And then uh, Dr. Punani. Okay, first, uh, first, yes. yes. Could you please identify yourself, ma'am? Yeah. Ne She's married from Ecuador. Okay. Buenas tardes, Luisina Alcibar de la Alcibar from the, the Blind Foundation from Ecuador. Yeah. I'm going to give you Marcy. La traducción está disponible. Can you hear me? Can you hear me, sir? Testing, testing. Can you hear me okay? Testing, testing. Testing, testing. Can you hear me? Testing, testing. Can you hear me? A testing, testing, testing. Can you hear me? Wonderful. Vicina Alciber from the National Federation of the Blind from Ecuador. And I think that we should see the perspective not from the point of view of a country, of underdeveloped country or developed country. I think that we should see this, we should see the development of the technology based on the functional life of the person who has disability, visual disability, and why. Because the advancement of technology takes a lot of applications, so many applications that, like for example, the mobile phones, you can see so many applications that a lot of us, we don't use. And, um, and I use a more clear example. Uh, right now, uh, everything is static. Like, for example, the induction ovens that we're using in our countries, I use them, and the induction ovens that, that are tactile, but I have to mark them because I have low vision because the oven, it, my finger, basically, it can start, it can turn on other one of the burners, and that's not functional for me. And so we cannot think of economy because if we're thinking about economy, then the rich are going to say that we are the complication because we're the poor, and the poor are going to be the complications for the rich. So we should be functional. And in my country, I propose, Mr. Vice President there, that why they don't have the phones that have keys, which is one of my friends who knows a lot about computers. He says that phones that have the keys generate a lot more cost, he said. 
But I say to him another point of view: the tactile phones, the tactile mobiles, we have to touch them a thousand times to be able to get to the application that we need, which is not functional for us, especially a person like myself. That I have my job and I am the director of the organization for the Manavi organization for the National Federation of the Blind in Ecuador, and I'm part of the National Council for the Protection of the Rights, and I'm also a housewife. So I cannot take 30, 40, even a minute in order to be able to find a phone, in order to be able to find in the tactile to be able to mobilize it. And that's not functional for me. And that's not what we're seeing as people. That's not what the industrial is not seeing. And all everything is tactile, be it the phone or the ovens or the washing machines. And what do we have to do? We have to mark them. And we can maybe put a little bit of a button on there or some sort of sticker or something. That's what we had to see. And that's my proposal, to see the use of the technology, not because of the economy, but for the functional life of it. Thank you. So much, uh, uh, speakers. You have any observation? I think uh, the one practical suggestion given by you is that it should be functional. It, uh, you cannot just simply talk about the economic factor. It should be functional. Any reaction from both of you? Thank you. Um, my personal conviction is that you can never talk about uh, technology without talking about economics. And the economy of a country. We did research some two years ago in Kenya about inclusive mobile phone technology. And from the initial stages, the statistics told us that only 8% of the population of blind people had a phone that could speak to them that was worth $100 and above. The rest of them, 92%, owned phones that were worth not more than $20. So you cannot uh, say you're going to do advocacy for high level uh, or functionality of technology without considering the different needs and the different capacities of people to afford that technology. Otherwise, we shall be promoting internal discrimination in our own advocacy. Thank you. Okay. Very good point. Yeah. All right. Uh, there are uh, many hands up, and uh, I request we have limited time. And uh, we request you, you to be very brief. Uh, James, I think, you know, give uh, a preference here first. Uh, and then you please be very brief with your questions, and then uh, the remarks will also be very brief. Okay. I just would like to know, AK, you were talking about um, the technology needs to be, of course, accessible, and the infrastructure needs to be created Yesterday I was listening to a presentation where an Indian PhD doctor was also speaking about the schemes which are already available, but that very often a lot of people are not really reached by that schemes in rural areas and everything. I don't know if you have any practical examples how you try to convey the knowledge and also the devices uh, about what is there to provide blind and vision impaired students or um, like, uh, like also people who are employed or who are seeking for a job with uh, the new technologies. Could you try to elaborate a bit more in, in a practical terms on that? Yeah, it's a direct question to you, Mithil sir. Very, very briefly, I wish I had the time to talk about it in some detail. 
but i will just say yes ma'am we never claim that we have been able to provide new technologies to all that we have uh, um, tried to do but uh, we have certain schemes in the government which make it possible for us to provide devices not necessarily high very high cost devices but appropriate technology devices uh, which are provided to the users virtually free of cost and that way certainly we have been able to, we have a very large population we can never claim that we have reached everyone but uh, there is an initiative which has proved quite beneficial to a very large number of users under the scheme the specified devices are provided to eligible users free of cost free of cost is important because uh, of the economic factor thank you okay james and uh, bhushan and our friend uh, yeah okay three three question three hands up already right uh, uh, thank you chair and um thank you to the uh, two speakers ak and martin um you have highlighted those uh, issues that we face daily on technology um i think the question of uh, accessibility and affordability is one area that we face in many uh, parts of the world particularly in developing countries um my experience uh, with accessibility is, is a problem uh where i have uh, five students with a vi at university level and then um the question of sending these students to school is enormous and then um affording this technology is extra burden so any ideas how we can help in these situations thank you okay panelists martin would you like to respond yeah. you want me to comment oh yeah africa okay okay i can comment that um i reckon what we've been trying to say here is that um there are ways in which we can promote home homegrown technological innovations uh the same same word i used uh, philanthrocapitalism is one approach the other way is trying to influence policy towards making sure that uh, inclusive technology is generated from within our countries in many of the countries right now like in africa we have uh, whole generations of young people who are very tuned to technology and they are writing all sorts of applications and coming up with all sorts of strange gadgets and we could use those ones we got things called hackathons you know groups of people trying to develop things together and we can look at those as some of the ways in which uh we can actually drive technology from within chairman okay. sir give me a moment yep. sir it's probably a matter of language but uh, if we view providing technology as an extra burden i'm talking of the use of expression burden then we'll never get anywhere providing technology is a matter of human right to the user okay. so long as we view it as a burden we'll never be able to solve the problem okay. now technology doesn't mean that it has to be a braille note taker to me arranging even a braille slate and stylus okay. is one form of technology okay. so you have to view it as a matter of right sir send the child to school provide him the basic assistive devices please do not view it as a burden okay thank you uh dr punani 
Yeah, actually, uh, I just want to mention, it's not the problem that technology is not there. There's a plenty of technology, there are plenty of products. But the problem is, people who have access to technology, they keep getting the better technology, advanced technology. But the problem is, majority of people, say 95%, people who need the technology have no access to technology at all. In fact, we are talking of braille display, as Dr. Mittal rightly pointed out. People don't have access to even the writing frames. So my suggestion is, coming back straight to both the speakers, WBU, ICBI, and many such organizations need very strong advocacy groups. Unless the technology is mainstreamed, unless the technology is taken a part of the education system, unless it's a matter of human rights, unless it's a matter of giving the technology as a part of education system or the human rights system or something which must be available at any cost, for that you need a lot of advocacy. We need a lot of convincing the governments of the people. In fact, now the time has come, instead of talking of more and better technology, is making technology accessible, reachable to the people who at the moment have no access at all. Thank you. Thank you so much for the observation. And our friend, uh, please identify yourself. Paul from United States. Oh, U.S., okay. Yes, um, I think uh, this is a very um, uh, insightful discussion we are having. But what I've seen in um, these discussions and in, 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 in these um, advocacy for technology, what is seriously missing is, you know, sustained and effective uh, use of technology in developing countries. And what I mean by that is from my own experience, based on my personal and professional um, experiences, uh, we get technologies to developing countries. But often and very quickly, these technologies break down. Hmm. There is no support. There is no easy way to access uh, a toll-free number. Believe it or not, you know, it's not cheap from West Africa, for instance, to call, uh, I'm just throwing out some examples here, like Freedom or um, Humanware um, or any of those um, exhibition, exhibition book, uh, folks that you saw today. So, and... I have personally asked some of these vendors, although you are bringing technologies to West Africa, to East Africa and uh, Asia, but you don't provide an easy means of support. And their response has rather been very cold about that. So, but you know, if we don't discuss this issue as we uh, debate technologies and those kinds of uh, good things that we see being used here in America, we will continue, uh, we will continue to, um, to fail in our effort. Because when you look at America, for instance, I work here, and I've worked in schools, I've worked in, in, at various levels. And what makes technology succeed is the support that is readily available. You can, you can be working with a kid in a classroom 
where there is a phone, and if you have run into a problem as a teacher of the blind, you can easily pick up the phone and call, uh, and call the vendor 800 miles away, and you get your problem resolved. But that's not possible in West Africa or East Africa or in Southeast Asia. So what, are you, what do you think we can do to impress upon vendors who supply these technologies so that they can, uh, they, they can provide that resource for easy and accessible support okay. for users of technologies in low-income countries. Thank you. Uh, any other questions? Okay. Uh, no further questions. And uh, any closing remarks by the two panelists? Can I? Very briefly. Very, very briefly, Chairman, sir, a point I wanted to make here is that we heard during WBU proceedings a friend from Africa saying that even a folding cane costs so much. It is difficult to access even a folding cane. That is why I had submitted, sir, that there are a lot of appropriate technology devices, not necessarily braille displays, which are being produced in developing countries themselves. If there could be some, some arrangement whereby developing countries could profit from those resources available within them, then perhaps devices will be available more easily in a more cost-effective manner, and the problem of uh, maintenance okay. would also be to that extent minimized. Perhaps regional unions of the WBU and ICVI chapters should look into it. For example, if you're looking for canes, I, um, give me one moment. I had a very good friend in Uganda who passed away some time back, and she used to write to me for asking for addresses of vendors in India for white canes. Yeah, okay. Now, that is one area which needs to be explored. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Martin, Thank you. That's right. Um, we ought, if we are saying that technology is a right, and it has to be factored in when we are dealing with other rights, we also need to then watch out against being our own enemies. I was involved in a campaign to convince a government to purchase braille machines, about a thousand of them. And when uh, the government was about to sign on the dotted line, a charity from somewhere came and said, we are going to fundraise to give X number of hundred brailers to, you know, X hundred brailers to ch poor children in your country. And so the question is, are we going to still receive this as gifts, as charities, when we're asking for the government to take responsibility in providing this in their planning? So we need to, as advocates and as our own speakers, to choose between what we're going to receive and how we're going to receive it, whether it's going to come in as a gift, as a right, or as a right. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. A few remarks at the end. I think I will start with the statement made by Martin that young children are tuned to the technology. Nowadays, we call young children as e-babies. So, the knowledge of children about technology should also be acknowledged. So, we cannot simply leave the technology. We cannot leave our children left behind. So, there are so many problems in handling technology, 
but at the same time we cannot overlook technology that has come out of uh, this uh, discussion and again the process of technology and uh, my friend who is uh, a technocrat he says that the process of technology is contact communicate and collaborate so with this contact communicate and collaborate you can address the question of affordable technology and accessible technology now also you know the observation came from the audience it is not only affordability and accessibility it should be sustainability also so summing up all these things the final conclusion of this session is technology should be treated as a means to the empowerment of persons with disabilities and technology should not be treated as simply the end thank you so much you are a wonderful audience now at the end of the session we have about 40 plus so that's a good audience distinguished audience let us give big applause to the speakers and also to the audience thank you so much